just imagine. The mightiest heroes of our time. Tom Turbine. Catman. The Streak. Green Guardsmen. Black Siren. Have banded together as the Justice Guild of America to stamp out the forces of evil wherever and whenever they appear. The Flames and Waves Podcast Network proudly presents... JLU Cast. Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of JLU Cast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, covering the animated adventures of the Justice League and their eventual evolution into Justice League Unlimited. I'm one of your hosts, the sexy one, Cindy Franklin. <laughs> and I'm Chris Franklin, and today we're discussing one of the most famous stories from the animated Justice League's original incarnation, Legends. We thought this episode deserved an extra special treatment, so we've invited a special guest to join us in our discussion. From the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show and Zoom for Sam right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, we'll soon be joined by Professor Zoom Yukinori. But before Zoom beams into our Supermates HQ, or dining room if it were, let's talk about the comic history of the superhero team that the legends of this story, the Justice Guild of America, are clearly based on. The forefather of all superhero groups, the Justice Society of America. Watchtower Files. The Justice Society of America, or JSA for short, debuted in All-Star Comics number 3, Winter 1940, released on November 22nd of that year, according to Mike's Amazing World. The group was created by editor Sheldon Mayer and writer Gardner Fox, with framing art and cover by E.E. Hibbard. The JSA initially existed in this comic as a framing sequence for the featured heroes who all had strips in other All-American or National Publication titles. The heroes got together and swapped stories. By the next issue, a straightforward adventure theme was added, with the JSA meeting to address a threat and then splitting off into solo chapters, or later small combos, before gathering again for the story's end. This would essentially remain the formula throughout the series run. The founding lineup consisted of Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, The Atom, The Sandman, The Spectre, Dr. Fate, and Our Man. Johnny Thunder was an unofficial member in this issue, and Superman and Batman were considered honorary members, mostly because they had their own self-titled magazines and therefore didn't need the exposure. Imagine DC doing that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only, <laughs> they only appeared in the JSA stories twice, with only one issue, number 36, featuring them in a large role. Over the years, the membership changed with Flash and Green Lantern going to honorary status when they received their own titles. Johnny Thunder officially joined, as did Starman, Dr. Midnight, Wildcat, and Black Canary. Wonder Woman joined initially as the group's secretary, grinding my teeth, and Mr. Terrific was a special guest for one issue only in the Golden Age. During its heyday, the JSA inspired a real-life fan club for young fans, the Junior Justice Society of America Club that kids could join through order forms in All-American and National Comics. Eventually, All-American and National Comics merged to become the company we would know today as DC Comics, and the JSA was less reliant on splitting the heroes evenly among the anthology titles. As superheroes fell out of favor in the late 1940s, many of these anthology and solo titles were canceled, or converted to another genre format, and by late 1948, All-Star Comics was the only home for the final JSA roster of Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Adam, Black Canary, and Wonder Woman, who was the only character who still had her own solo title. So she got a revenge for being the secretary. Yeah. (laughs) The JSA ended its original run unceremoniously with All-Star Number 57, February-March 1951. The next issue, the series was retitled All-Star Western, 
and the JSA was no more. DC would revive the concepts of the JSA heroes in a series of Silver Age revamps using the names and powers as springboards for new sci-fi-based protagonists. In showcase number four, the new Scarlet Speedster, Barry Allen, is seen to be a fan of the Golden Age Flash's comics. This eventually led to Barry's Flash meeting his hero, Jay Garrick, in the classic Flash number 123, September 1961, The Flash of Two Worlds, written by none other than Gardner Fox and drawn by Carmine Infantino, who had also drawn Flash adventures during the late 1940s. Fox and editor Julius Schwartz conceived of a parallel world, soon to be known as Earth 2, where the JSA's tales actually happened and weren't just fiction, as in Barry's world, Earth 1, and our own. Jay returned in subsequent team-ups, the third of which is Flash 137, featuring a cameo by the JSA who were kidnapped by their old foe, Vandal Savage. Two months later, in Justice League of America number 21, August 1963, the Justice Society returned in style in the two-part Gardner Fox tale, Crisis on Earth 1 slash Crisis on Earth 2, drawn by Mike Sikowski and inaugurating a series of annual crossovers with their Earth 1 counterparts most of which continued the Crisis title theme, making it a hallmark of DC storytelling. Editor Julius Schwartz released these team-ups during the summer to capitalize on children's long school breaks. In addition to appearing annually in the JLA title, the JSA members would often pop up in solo books belonging to their Earth-1 counterparts. Flash continued to meet Flash while the two Atoms and Green Lanterns met as well. As the 60s came to a close, JSA member Black Canary migrated from Earth 2 to Earth 1 after the events of the crossover in JLA number 73 through 74, summer of 1969, in a story by Denny O'Neill and artist Dick Dillon. She joined the JLA, as did later JSA edition The Red Tornado, who also switched Earths. In JLA number 100 through 103, summer of 1972, in a story by Lynn Wein and drawn by Dillon, the two teams gathered to locate a third group of heroes, the time-tossed Seven Soldiers of Victory, contemporaries of the JSA during the 1940s. The following year, in JLA number 107 through 108, Wien and Dylan had the heroes of two Earths journey to another, Earth X, where Nazi Germany won World War II. There they met the heroic Freedom Fighters, costume heroes once owned by the Quality Comics Group. In the fall of 1975, the JSA received their own title again, reviving All-Star Comics with issue number 58, ignoring the All-Star Western run, under writer-editor Jerry Conway and artist Rick Estrada and Wally Wood. The JSA was joined by the Super Squad, which consisted of the Earth-2 Robin, already a JSA member since JLA-55, Power Girl, the Earth-2 version of Supergirl, and former Seven Soldier, the Star-Spangled Kid. The revived All-Star series further developed how different Earth-2 was from Earth-1. Superman and Power Girl were not as chummy as their more familiar Kal-El and Kara, and Batman was shown to have married Catwoman, who gave birth to a new legacy heroine, the Huntress. During this period, subsequent all-star creative team, writer Paul Levitz and artist Joe Stanton and Bob Layton, finally revealed the JSA wartime origin in DC special number 29, August-September of 77. All-star fell victim to the DC implosion, which resulted in many title cancellations. The strip found a home at Adventure Comics, where mortality first caught up with the aging heroes. In Adventure number 462, the Batman of Earth 2 was murdered. The JSA lost their strip in Adventure, and then another member in the annual JLA-JSA crossover. In JLA number 171-172, Summer of 79, by Jerry Conway and Dick Dillon, seldom seen JSA or Mr. Terrific was unceremoniously murdered to provide a mystery for the heroes to solve. 
The JSA continued to appear in JLA annually, but one of their number got their own backup strip in Wonder Woman. The Huntress debuted her long-running feature in issue number 271, again by creators Levitz and Staten. Longtime JSA fan Roy Thomas came to DC in 1981 and launched a new series featuring the JSA and other Golden Age heroes, set on Earth 2 during their World War II heyday. All-Star Squadron began in summer of 81 and would eventually feature almost every Golden Age character DC had access to among its huge roster. The JLA-JSA team-up of 1982 would cross over into the All-Star Squadron title, with Thomas and JLA writer Conway weaving a time-warping tale also involving our world, which DC long ago dubbed Earth Prime. Roy Thomas, his wife Dan, and artists Jerry Ordway and Mike Macklin would launch Infinity Incorporated in late 1983, set on modern-day Earth 2 and featuring the children and protégés of the JSA, as well as the senior heroes themselves in supporting roles. The headache-inducing true story of Black Canary was revealed in JLA number 219 through 220, the type of story which made the biggest crisis soon to come all but unavoidable. 1985's epic miniseries, Crisis on Infinite Earths, brought many changes to the JSA. The final JLA-JSA team-up took place in Infinity Incorporated number 19 and JLA number 244 in summer of 85. By the year's end, during Crisis miniseries, Earth 2 would be no more, consolidated into a single Earth along with the remaining worlds of DC's multiverse. In the one-shot special The Last Days of the Justice Society from 1986, the original super team would be sent to their final reward, an eternal cycle of death and rebirth where they would stave off Ragnarok. The team disappeared into limbo while their histories were retconned to have never included any memories of a parallel Earth. The remaining legacy characters had their origins and backstories altered or completely gutted as a result. The JSA's permanent retirement was relatively short. Following a JSA miniseries set in the past, they returned to the present in the miniseries Armageddon Inferno in 1992. This was followed soon after by their first ongoing series under the Justice Society of America title by Lynn Strawinski? Uh, Strawinski. Okay. Mike Parabek and Mike McMallon. This well-received series was canceled by short-sighted DC staffers who determined the old heroes didn't appeal to younger kids. I was 17 at the time and loved that book, so take that as you will. The JSA was given a less-than-heroic send-off in the 1994 Zero Hour event, and the less said about the rampant ageism in that story, the better. Thankfully, the late 1990s brought about a JSA renaissance. Thanks to writers James Robinson, David Goyer, and Jeff Johns, the JSA achieved their greatest popularity since the Golden Age, headlining two popular titles as well as spin-offs in miniseries. In recent years, the original team has all but vanished since the advent of the New 52, despite a new iteration of the team on a new Earth 2, but it looks like they may be coming back again soon. You can't keep the greatest generation down for long, after all. That's right. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by our special guest who knows a thing or two about parallel worlds, Professor Zoom Yukonori. Professor Zoom Yukonori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. <laughs> With unique celebrity guest perspectives to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Solomon Grundy don't understand. Entity Terraman. I'm not following either. Bizarro totally get it. I intend to participate 
making your podcast show of wonders. As if I wasn't nervous enough. Little Professor Man, mansplaining again. Accessing files. Experience the wonder, Bizarro. What in tarnation did you do? Adios, partner. Me and Bizarro Terra Man. Goodbye. Of the Done and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Watch out, you square brain varmint. <laughs> Only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay, we're back, and as promised, we are joined by the leader of the Zoom crew and Samantha Fox's number one fan, Professor Zoom Yukonori. Hey, Zoom, how's it going? Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, no problem. Glad to have you on. Uh, when I mentioned we were going to do this show amongst our fire and water brethren, uh, you specifically said, hey, if you're, I'd like to be on the Legends episode. So what, uh, what is it about Legends that you, uh, that you love so much? Well, um, if I need to go to that, I probably have to go into my history with Justice League, if that's all right. Go for um, it. Okay, so back in them, our days... Well, you know, unlike the rest of the Tim shows, and I won't even go into that, with Justice League, it was a, a show I was able to get into starting even before day one, uh, because I had attended the the Justice League presentation for the 2001 San Diego Comic-Con panel with Bruce Tim and Rich Fogel and James Tucker and Glenn Murakami and Shane Glines. Um, and with my eidetic memory, I was able to fill out a richer summary report than what was posted on the Toon Zone website on the internet. So I submitted that to the now defunct comics to film website, uh, which was created by Rob Worley. Um, comics to film is actually one of the first, if not the first website that was dedicated to news about comic book properties that were adapted in film and television, including animation. Um, and while I had submitted a single report from start to finish comics to film broke that up into a series of articles, which was actually much better. But from there, I became known as the Justice League correspondent for comics to film. And I did advance reviews of the Justice League pilot screener, which had the title sequence and the animatic that was painted by Bruce Timm and had the Twins of Evil music track. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I would later do reviews for Savage Time and Twilight, as well as the Justice League Unlimited episode Initiation. I also had a screener tape for Injustice for All before that episode was supposed to air. But I was told to hold off on doing a review until Cartoon Network gave the word, and I don't think they ever gave the word. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but my, associ my association with comics to film had given me a little bit of verbal clout to be able to actually conduct voice actor interviews, and the first of which was Corey Burton. Okay. And Corey, Corey had a website, and on August 3rd of 2001, in a news post on his website, he gushed about all of the famous co-stars in a recent Justice League recording session. And a few months later, I actually responded to that post on his site to ask him if that was for the Legends episode. And surprisingly, he replied back and confirmed that it was. So that became a little news story in December 2001 on Comics to Film. And then I worked up the nerve to actually send Corey Burton an email asking if he'd be willing to do an interview for Comics to Film. And he was happy to agree. So we talked about his early work and becoming Brainiac on the Superman series, as well as uh, what he could recall of his experience at the Legends episode recording. And uh, as stated, the Comics to Film website was long defunct, and I cannot find that Corey Burton interview anywhere online. 
Uh, Rob Worley reprised comics to film into a feature on comic book resources. And you can find some of my Justice League stories and reviews that I had done for comics to film on the CBR site. But uh, if you search for them, but not that interview in particular. Oh, now at, at the time. Um, that I was getting ready to do this interview, I was posting on the Toon Zone message boards, and I had met two industry insiders that went by the handles of Nothing and Dark Lantern on on the Toon Zone boards. I believe one worked for Turner Bar- Broadcasting, which um, which owned Cartoon Network. And the other worked at Warner Brothers, and they would post little hints about upcoming stories now and then. So I reached out to both of them by a private message to let them know I was planning to interview Corey Burton about the Legends episode and whether there was any information about the episode that they could share with me in advance. Uh, Now, this was January of 2002, by the way. This was about, what, four months before it aired, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I wanted Corey Burton to feel more at ease and not have to worry about spoiling anything in our interview. So, um, what happened was, is that nothing and dark lantern, well, it's weird talking about that by their, by their call names, but that's what they are. Um, they both sent me a copy of the story treatment for that show, which was basically a listing of the characters and a description as well as a brief synopsis of the storyline. It wasn't the full script, but one version, which was copied and pasted in a private message, had all of the characters' names as they appear in this episode. The other version was a scanned PDF, and it was an earlier treatment, which had the original Justice Society character names on it. And I recall there were actually some slight differences in the plot in the original draft as well that was changed. But unfortunately, I can't access that file anymore either because all of my early 2000 files were saved on an old hard drive that I had back when I had Windows XP. And my newer computers now can't read it. So um, I suppose I should have stuck with CD-ROMs. <laughs> or you can come to Cynthia at some point and we still have Windows XP on a couple of the library computers. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> I am not even kidding. Mail it to us and we'll we'll put it on there and then get it off for you. How's that? Well, there we go. We we could do if you want that behind the scenes you can you can get my old Corey Burton interview too because it's on a word document in there too. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so yeah, this this was actually one of the few episodes that I actually knew what was going to happen before I watched it, but I was still surprised anyway by what I saw and what I heard and 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 everything on the show anyway. So some, somehow knowing all of this stuff in advance did not spoil my enjoyment of the episode. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's – I. you know, when you were saying that, I was comics to film, Toon Zone. These were all – I was probably reading your stuff back then, and I didn't even make the connection years later when we met through Fire and Water, you know. Uh, so, so that's really cool. So it's like the, the, the threads connected like way back when, you know, uh, but, uh, yeah, comics to film was, that was, that was my go-to, you know, lunch break place to, you know, go and, and see what was going on, um, uh, back in the day. And I followed Toon Zone too. So, yeah. And I know even some of the names like Dark Lantern and stuff like, you know, I, I remember those posting. I was one of a lurker. Uh, there, I don't think okay. I posted ver- if if ever I was I was lurking back in back in those days. <laughs> Dark Dark Lantern was one of the more interesting ones. He would he would do these secret codes where he would actually put in spoilers, but you have to like break his code to figure out what the spoilers are. So it was kind of his way of revealing things without revealing things. Unfortunately, he passed away in two thousand nine. Oh, 
I didn't know that. He, uh, yeah, he, he had the H1N1 flu and then he caught pneumonia um, as he was recovering from that. And I, and I think that's what did him in. Oh, wow. I did not know yeah. that. Hmm. Well, Sorry, I that didn't mean to go on a somber note before no. we get to the actual <laughs> somber note of the of the um, of the episode. Right, right. Well, why don't we jump into the episode now? So, uh, as you set up, it it aired uh, in April. So, Legends Part One aired on April twenty first, uh, tw- uh, two thousand two, and uh, Part Two aired on April twenty eighth, two thousand two. It was written by Andrew Kreisberg. Yes, that Andrew Kreisberg. We'll get into that later. Uh, directed by Dan Ribba. Music by Lolita Ritmanis and had uh, Maria Canals as the voice of Hot Girl, Phil Lamar as Green Lantern, Carl Lumley as Jean Jones, George Newbern as Superman, very briefly, uh, Michael Rosenbaum as The Flash, David Naughton as The Streak, believe it or not, William Catt as The Green Guardsman, uh, Stephen Root as Catman, Ted McGinley as Tom Turbine, Jennifer Hale as Black Siren, Neil Patrick Harris as Ray Thompson, Udo Kier as The Music Master, Michael McKeon as the Sportsman, Corey Burton as Dr. Blizzard, and Jeffrey Jones as Sir Swamp. Justice League responds to a giant robot attack in downtown Metropolis. Unbeknownst to them, the giant mech is controlled remotely from a yacht at sea by none other than Lex Luthor. After the rest of the League is bested in battle, Superman rips open the robot's back, and Batman throws a well-placed electric batarang into its power reactor. The resulting feedback in the control panel blows Lex out of his boat and into the ocean. Back in the city, his robot begins to collapse, bolts of energy shooting everywhere. Unfortunately, it's about to fall upon the prone bodies of Green Lantern, Hawkgirl, and Jean Jones on the ground below. The Flash runs around his friends, creating a vortex that slows the robot's descent. The rampant energy mixes with the Flash's whirlwind, and in an instant, the heroes, the robot, and everything in the city within a 30-foot radius around them vanishes before the stunned eyes of the world's finest duo. The lost heroes awaken amidst the robot's wreckage, but are unable to find their teammates. Did we win? I'm not sure. Superman! Batman! Where'd they go? Perhaps I can contact them with... When John tries to contact them psychically, he instead sees painful flashes of terror and destruction. He recovers and the team splits up to find their friends. Instead, they find themselves in a world not unlike an idyllic 1950s America, complete with the cars and fashions of the time, and even a friendly driver in an ice cream truck. Flash suggests they may have been blasted into the past, but Green Lantern finds a newspaper with today's date, although it isn't the Metropolis Daily Planet, but the completely unfamiliar Seaboard City Times. Despite their curiosity and bewilderment, 
duty calls when a police alarm sounds. The local police confront a villain called the Music Master, who has just stolen a priceless Stradivarius violin from the local music center. He blasts the cops with energy from the accordion he's carrying and speeds away in his souped-up clarinet car. Green Lantern stops his escape, but the villain mistakes him for someone named Green Guardsman in disguise. Not so fast. Your disguise can fool me, Green Guardsman. Green Guardsman? It's still the same old song. The powerful accordion takes out the confused Emerald Gladiator. As the strange car speeds away, GL recovers and grabs a violin from afar with his ring. As he and Flash ponder just what they've gotten themselves into, a voice from above announces, Perhaps you haven't heard, but in Seaboard City, crime doesn't pay. Hey, you've got the wrong... It's Tom Turbine who activates his power belt, charging up his wrist gauntlets. Then he leaps from the building and belts the Flash with a supercharged punch while grabbing the Stradivarius. An angry Green Lantern retaliates by stealing Turbine's belt, but is soon set upon by the motorcycle-riding Catman and Black Siren, who manage to knock him off balance. Hawkgirl and Jean arrive, but before they can act, they succumb to the vibrations of a gigantic jackhammer, a construct, yay, const- created by the power ring of the Green Guardsman. It seems we are not in Metropolis anymore. Yeah, I got that. It can't be. Surrender, villains! Whoever you are, you're no Green Lantern. Green Lantern is shocked by what he sees, but Hawkgirl isn't one to hesitate, so she attacks the unknown ring slinger. He traps her in a birdcage construct. Yay again! And when Flash offers to help, another Scarlet Speedster named the Streak waylays him. The battle continues, witnessed by a young boy cheerleading for his hometown heroes. When debris from the battle begins to fall on the boy, the Flash races to his rescue. Seeing this, the streak breaks up the fight. Stand down! All of you, stand down! No one who would risk his own life to save another could be evil. I think perhaps our two teams should talk. He suggests that the two groups talk and they take their discussion to the local hero's headquarters, a mansion on the outskirts of town. Around their meeting table, the team introduces themselves as the Justice Guild of America with a formal roll call. Allow us to introduce ourselves. Justice Guild, roll call. Catman. Black Siren. Green Guardsman. Tom Turbine. The Streak. Uh, yeah. I'm Green Lantern. That's Flash, Hawkgirl, and John Jones. And this is our official Justice Guild Junior Justice Guildsman, Ray Thompson. When I grow up, I'm going to be a crime fighter. So long as you remember to eat right and stay in school. (laughs) Right. John then suffers a spell of dizziness. The JGA is a strong believer in the power of milk, and Black Siren goes off to fetch a snack for the men, taking an agitated hot girl with her. Mm -hmm. I think I have some freshly baked cookies, too. Let's let the men talk. They can talk all they like. Could you excuse us for a sec? I will not be patronized. We need answers here. So maybe just this once we can all play along. 
So, you fight crime and bake cookies. How do you do it? Green Lantern confides in Flash that he already knew of these heroes as comic book characters from the collection of his Uncle James. The Justice Guild was his favorite old comic series, and it helped establish what being a hero meant to him. When mm. Hawkgirl returns with milk and cookies, Flash makes the mistake of further adding to her humiliation. Hey, cookie. One word, and you'll be the fastest man alive with a limp. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the seaside headquarters of the evil Injustice Guild, Music Master relates his encounter with the Justice Leaguers to the sportsman, Dr. Blizzard, and the interestingly not named on screen Sir Swami. But we will get to that. Swami suggests a way to settle their petty disagreements. Whichever one of them pulls off the greatest crime will have the honor of devising a plan to destroy the Justice Guild and their new guests. Holy lofty aspirations. Meanwhile, Tom Turbine explains his parallel worlds theory on how the Justice League hopped Earths. It involved Flash absorbing the energy from the robot and vibrating at a different frequency than the Justice League's Earth. Jean adds that perhaps the writers on that world were tuned in to this one when they wrote the JGA comics Green Lantern read as a child. Tom unveils a prototype transdimensional gateway he's been working on, which may be the key to returning the leaguers home, if he can figure out a way to power it. Black Siren asks a slow boiling hot girl to help her fetch dessert when Sergeant <laughs> O'Shaughnessy arrives with a note for the heroes. It is a challenge from the Injustice Guild, boasting that they will commit crimes based on the four ancient elements of fire, water, air, and earth. The League is puzzled why criminals would tip off the authorities, but it's just another day in Seaboard City for the Justice Guild. Asking for the League's help, they make each Leaguer an honorary member of the Guild, bequeathing them decoder rings not unlike the ones Green Lantern saw advertised on the back of his uncle's old comics. Ray, the decoder rings. We don't have time to induct you with a formal ceremony. But consider yourselves honorary members of the Justice Guild. I don't believe it. You could order rings just like these off the back of the old comic books. Nice plastic. We should split into teams if we're to have any hope of defeating the Injustice Guild. Let's just go with the person on our left. So I guess it's you and me, huh? Can I come? Can I? Can I? I would hesitate to put the boy in harm's way. Sure thing, little buddy. Oh, boy! Ray asks if he can tag along, and despite John's concern, Catman agrees. <laughs> Sorry, I love that bit. Yeah, so he just talks right over top of him. Sure thing, little buddy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> With Tom Turbine staying behind to work on a way for the leaguers to get home, the other heroes split up into groups of two. The Streak believes one of the targets is the Flame of Rasputin Ruby Necklace on display at the local museum. He and Green Lantern share their mutual admiration for one another, although the streak's sincere but casually racist caveat of GL being a credit to his people ruffles the Emerald Gladiator's feathers just a bit. You know your stuff. It's an honor to fight beside you. The feeling's mutual. You're a credit to your people, son. Uh, thanks. The green and red duo catches Sir Swami red-handed with the ruby, and another battle ensues. Unfortunately, the crafty magician pulls a disappearing act with the prize. Across town, the music master steals a prototype airplane as Green Guardsman and Hawk Girl rush to intercept him. 
Guardsman is forced to stop the headstrong hawk girl from smashing the priceless antique in her effort to stop the flying thief. Elsewhere, the city's mayor unveils a new fountain, which is soon frozen by Dr. Blizzard. Flash and Black Siren make the scene entangle with their frosty foe. The sportsman robs the trophy of the Seaboard City Clay Court Tennis Championship, but finds his truck pursued by Catman, Ray, and Jean. Catman makes it onto the truck, but an exploding badminton birdie knocks the hero off his feet and leaves him hanging on for dear life on the front of the cab. Hot Girl's pursuit of Music Master and the runaway plane results in two window washers hanging from their dangling scaffold. Green Guardsman admits his ring doesn't have any power over aluminum, but he <laughs> and Hot Girl manage to save this familiar-looking duo anyway. The Wing Wonder takes after the plane again, but this time she gets a blast from the Music Master's accordion and goes down in a nearby cemetery overlooking the town. Flash disarms Dr. Blizzard of his ice-generating head mirror, but leaves his foe behind to stop a runaway TNT truck from hitting a bus full of nuns? After saving the bus, he barely makes it out before the truck explodes, knocking him unconscious. When Black Siren runs to his side, the recovered Dr. Blizzard freezes them both solid. Jean saves Catman and returns him to his motorcycle when he suffers another attack. He briefly sees Seaboard City destroyed in a huge explosion, then collapses. Hawk Girl comes to in the cemetery and notes a series of graves on top of the hill. She is shocked by what she sees, the tombstones of the entire Justice Guild of America. Here lies Scott Mason, the Green Guardsman? No. To be can. <laughs> bum bum bum. <laughs> Should we all do that together? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah. go. Okay. One, two, three. Bum 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 bum. bum, bum. bum. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> You're going to include the laughter on that one, too. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> yes. Before we get started breaking the episode down, like you said, Zoom, this originally was written with the, the Justice Society. Uh, in the place of the Justice Guild. Uh, and Bruce Tam on the commentary track for uh, part two of this, that's on the DVD sets, uh, Bruce Tam and James Tucker talk about how they developed the idea of this story while they were in Korea visiting one of the animation studios they used. And they were on this historical tour of Korea that they were really just being, like, rudely ignoring, apparently. <laughs> because, <laughs> because all they could do was, they were really excited about this idea. Uh, for this, the idea of doing a JLA or not JLA, JL JSA uh, crossover episode in the tradition of the, you know, the annual summer events that Julius Schwartz started back in the '60s. You know, I've heard different versions of, you know, who exactly at DC uh, put the kibosh on this. I heard it was Paul Levitz. Uh, you that know, is what he, yeah. That is what he said in the Tune Zone interview. He okay. said that the publisher Paul Levitz had some concerns with the story because um, this was at the time when DC had spent a lot of time and effort in revitalizing the JSA to the point where it was actually one of their more popular titles mm -hmm. at the time, and um, he was he was concerned that the story as written was disrespecting them. Um, and almost saying that the JSA was a joke, even though that was not what uh, Bruce Tim um, said. He, he he wanted the story to be a love letter to the original JSA and just basically the way comics used to be at the time. 
Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I totally, I get where Paul Levitz was coming from and I have seen it attributed to Paul Levitz as well. So we'll just, I mean, I'll take their word for it. It was Paul Levitz, but uh, it, you know, I see where they were coming from, but I do think that this is, I mean, it's a pretty accurate <laughs> translation of late golden age and early silver age comics. I mean, it really, yeah. it, it really is. I mean, it's almost verbatim what you would find in a, a JSA comic or a, a Justice League uh, JSA crossover of the early 60s. And, you know, Paul Levitz, of course, had written the JSA in the 70s, so he probably had some proprietary feelings toward the that uh, strip. So you can kind of understand. And, yeah, they had JSA was a huge deal. I mean, you know, Jeff Johns and and David Goyer and James Robinson had really established that as a as a popular book. So I, I can kind of see why. And, and, and it kind of frees things up, much like... Alan Moore, you know, when he pitched the Watchmen to Dick Giordano, and he's like, yeah, yeah, we just bought those guys from Charlton. Let's not ruin them, okay? <laughs> yeah. But, but unlike the Watchmen, at least with the Justice Guild, you can definitely see who was supposed to be who. Oh, right, whom, yeah. So to speak. <laughs> right, yeah. There's, there's no denying, like especially uh, some of them are very, very obvious, and we'll get into that as we, as we introduce them. Uh, yes, b- but uh, this episode was written by Andrew Kreisberg, who, yes, the, he is the very same Andrew Kreisberg, who is the co-creator, executive producer of the CWDC shows Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl and Legend of Tomorrow. Uh, and uh, so, you know, multiple Earths, this guy, <laughs> he's got a thing for him, apparently. Um, he wrote uh, these two episodes and then one of the best episodes from the JLU version of the show, uh, the greatest story never told, which with mm. Mr. Gold, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, it's one got a lot favorites. of cred. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorites too. Yeah, he's he didn't write a whole lot for this series, but what he wrote, great stuff. So my under my understanding, this was probably one of Andrew Kreisberg's first uh, animation scripts, I believe. I think so. Yeah, I, I look at his IMDb. I think this is the first one that that pops up and he went on to write, you know, he's, he's, he continues to write. I think he wrote a justice league action last year or Mm. recently. So he's, he's still writing animation and in addition to running those shows, which how he has time, I have no idea, but (laughs) why do I have the feeling it was that booster gold is the time bug guy episode. The one that time out. I wonder if that was the one that he wrote. That's Mm. another good booster gold episode in my opinion but i digress sorry please. no no you're fine you're fine it's it's uh, something somebody go out to imdb and find out if that's the one so yeah because uh, we can't look up things on google while we're recording it's no, impossible no it's skype impossible. won't let us do it <laughs> i'm afraid to honestly uh, <laughs> <laughs> it'll all come crashing down right um right off the bat we see an unconscious green lantern hit the ground in front of us i think that's a nice way to Establish this story is largely from Green Lantern's perspective. Um, I mean, it's like the first thing you see is just like him hitting the 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 street out in Metropolis. So I thought that was a nice way to get things going. Mm-hmm. The robot at yeah. the beginning of this episode is based on Eva Unit One from Neon Genesis Event. Ev- ev- how do you pronounce that? Zoom. I don't know. Evangelion. Evangelion. Okay. I am not a anime guy. I'm sorry. Uh, an anime. That's si- right. I- Yes. <laughs> you are are you familiar with the series? I, I am, actually, yes. And and you know, they had robots called Evas and they had robots called Lions, but I don't remember where Angels came into play. I probably didn't watch it enough to get that far. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's Eva, angel, and lion all into one word, evangelical. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, it was a very sleek design. I think there was a little shade of Marvel Comics Ultron in the face, in my opinion. I, maybe it's just me, a little bit of that pumpkin smile. Yeah, I think you're right. I thought the same thing too. There's, there's that, that crazy mouth that, that Ultron's got. Yeah. Um, mm. James Tucker even calls it, uh, specifically points out that it's that robot in the commentary track. So they weren't, they weren't trying to hide it. Uh, the color scheme actually matches the robot and Lex's color scheme. So I think that's a nice little touch too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure viewers could guess that it was actually Luthor's robot, even though the Justice League was completely clueless. <laughs> Who could be behind this thing? This giant purple and green robot. <laughs> I guess it could be the Who Joker. Who else likes green and purple? I don't know. Everybody. Could be anyone. Every villain likes green and purple. I mean, it is the color. <laughs> the, they are the colors of villainy in comics. You know? Secondary colors, yes. And, and orange, too. Right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we see Lex and Batman, but we don't hear either one except for uh, Batman grunts when he throws the Batarang, but that's probably not – it's either not Kevin Conroy or they lifted a grunt from a previous episode. So it's kind of hard could, to tell. Could I say something about that scene where Batman throws his Batarang? Sure. It, it's – I mean it is one of the most well-done animated sequences I have ever seen in season one. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's throwing the Batarang. The camera is essentially dollying backward to follow the flight of the Batarang. So basically Batman and all of the buildings in the background need to be animated so they recede into the background. I mean, the scene lasts less than two seconds, but it's so dynamic because they basically animated everything in that shot. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's really sharp looking. It 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 looks like something like you'd see in like a a movie where they're really putting an extra bit of attention into or something, you know, yeah. There's there's a similar scene later with the ice cream truck first passes Green Lantern and Flash on the Seaboard City street. Mm-hmm. And we're watching Green Lantern and Flash being passed by from the truck driver's perspective and then we see the waving ice cream truck driver passing by from the hero's perspective. So, you know, those characters are essentially following this convex arc motion as they're moving from one side of the screen to the other. And that's a lot of animation that has to be done on just those characters and the ice cream truck. But then, you know, the the they use the digital painting background for those, but they use forced perspective to create that similar effect of the moving background as the camera's panning across. So it was really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this ep- these two episodes are actually really nice looking. I think they're two of the nicest looking episodes, although Bruce Tim complained that Seaboard City was maybe even brighter than they than he kind of wished it had been. It's like really, really bright, very pastel and uh, kind of it's the antithesis of the uh, old Batman, the animated series look in a lot of ways. Uh, well, I think that that works for this episode. Oh, yeah. In my opinion. Oh, yeah, it definitely. It definitely does. They said they didn't want to do the. You know, they didn't want to go the Dick Tracy route of having everything be like primary colors, but uh, primary colors. But they did like that lighter look to show that, you know, show the different era and everything so sparkly and pristine. And I think they, I think it does. It, it really does sell, you know, what what's we, we don't want to spoil things yet. Although most people know what's going on. But, uh, you know, I think it sells what what's going on with the with Seaboard City. So, um, right. I want to ask you guys a question. Okay, Superman rips open the back of the robot. He's looking right at that, you know, power core thing. <laughs> why does he why does he waste time having Batman throw a batarang at it? 
didn't want we have to feel useful. Okay. Yeah. okay. I was about to say the same thing. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the true secret of the Justice League is that they just leave openings for Batman to feel needed, you know, to feel feel like he's part of the team that he's that you know yeah. it, that's that's the true secret of, of of the Justice League. It's it's even worse than the Lego Batman movie where they're having a party without him. It's <laughs> He's the only one among us without special powers. Yeah. We need to give him something to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Superman's like, I could just zap this with my heat vision, but, you know, Bruce is just standing up there and he looks kind of like, hey, guys, can I do something? You know. So <laughs> Chris. How much special effect budget have we got for heat vision? Not enough? Okay, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Batarangs are cheap. There you go. We're just going to animate all the buildings behind him instead. <laughs> that costs more than a than a heat vision. Zap. <laughs> that costs more than heat vision. I know. Uh, Those beaten counters at Warner's are like going okay. Killed the budget on this episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, but but oh, but it's so spectacular though. <laughs> oh yeah, it, it's it. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Superman is only in this episode for a few minutes, and he still gets zapped by electricity, which of course is evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ahead of ourselves, that, that goes. <laughs> <laughs> we got it. We got to We got to mention we it are, now. We already at the not so Superman count already. <laughs> well, we'll bring it back up later at the end. But just just so you know, guys, put a pin, put in, a pin it. in it. There's two different things right here. We're gonna go click, 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 click. Uh, <laughs> I will admit, when I was doing the synopsis and I was mentioning electricity flying everywhere, I was tempted to say exactly where it was gonna go. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do love that Flash vibrating is what gets them to Earth 2, for lack of a better term. Uh, it's how Barry first encountered Earth 2 in the comics. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that's, you know, he was he was putting on a show for kids at a, uh, like school kids. And he like vibrated into Earth 2, which is so, such an innocuous way of finding a parallel wor- world, you know, but. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I really did. You, you mentioned the in the synopsis the the effect of the the eaten away buildings, like this circumference of just this this ring of destruction. That's like there's no, the buildings just aren't there, and yes. that's really nice. That's a nice trick, and it's something they'll use again uh, in the season two uh, two parter hereafter with Superman. Uh, right, mm-hmm. which is a, also another great two-parter, mm-hmm. uh, which I yeah. really love. Yeah, so. it was a very chilling. It was a very chilling thing. But then it leads to my first nitpicky mistake because when we see the leaguers appear after the opening, um, after the opening title sequence, the robot is there in the alley with them. But all those pieces of buildings that vanished is nowhere to be seen. Mm, yeah, that's a good good point. Yeah. So, there's there's all these random pieces of building on another parallel world. Then yeah, they may have skipped a few worlds on the way there. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to comment why nobody's in the streets, but we'll get to that later. It actually does work into the to the episode, um, uh, the story. So the, you know why no one notices a giant robot and four strangely dressed people, one lady with wings and another green Martian uh, in the streets. But you know. Uh, we'll we'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. Well, you know, even the displaced leaguers—they thought Superman and Batman went away. They didn't even notice it was suddenly daytime. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> Shades of even on uh, the old Super Friends episode, Universe of Evil, Superman notices that the time has changed when he yep. when he jumps to the the Universe of Evil. So <laughs> the volcano erupted, but it suddenly become night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite Super Friends episode. <laughs> I love that episode too. It's something about these parallel Earth episodes that are just so fantastic. Yeah, it's just you know, it's the mirror, mirror Star Trek thing. It's it's just how oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, John John has a psychic attack, and it's really well handled, and it builds a nice mystery. Uh, did either of you catch on to the ultimate reveal? I don't want to say what that is, but did you kind of? figure out what was going on early. Do you remember? I mean, I know we've all seen this many times, but like when we first I'm watched it to 20 it. years I mean, I ago. Don't know. Yeah, it's been, it's been a minute. <laughs> Almost 20 years ago at this point. <laughs> I, as I explained, I already knew right. how this episode was going to end. So, Right. Okay. Yeah. But, I, but I, thought it was, I thought it was neat that they were actually adding hints in part one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, did not, I, did not, I did not get that from the treatment that they were actually going to be adding little hints like that in part one. So... Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I'll be honest, uh, this thread, I kind of forget because when we get into all the the uh, nods to the comics and stuff, I just get caught up in that and I forget the, you know, the uh, the the mystery subplot. I, I kind of get lost. <laughs> so it's ready to smack me upside the head when it comes up, you know, so that's... Well- <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of neat how the rest of the story is so engaging. You're just pulled into like this, you know, golden age 1950s hero adventure that you kind of just forgot about or momentarily forgot about the the, you know, visions of doom that of course for some reason Jean would not share with any of his colleagues. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. It's you know, at, at this point I think we all need to share every bit of information we have, guys. You know, it, it could be important. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, John was still learning to trust other people, I guess. I well, don't know. that's true. When you're, you know, trapped in a military facility for however long he was, you know, and, and the whole thing with the Imperium and all that. So, yeah, I, I can see I can see that. Um, I do like that Flash immediately thinks they were blasted into the past. I I. I, you know, I, I mean, you, they're fairly new as a team, but we did, we do feel like these guys have been around the block a bit. Mm-hmm. And so Flash, you know, I mean, he jumps to, what did we time travel? You know, I, I like that. That's, you know, these guys have seen some weird stuff. So it, 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 it it's a nice little bit. Uh, I got a question for you guys. The paper is the Seaboard City Times Picayune. Is that how you pronounce that? It, I looked that up. I had no idea what that is. It's, it's either a relatively worthless Spanish coin or a town in Mississippi just north of New Orleans. And I don't really know why that's on the paper. It's any ideas? <laughs> no. <laughs> I guess not. Cindy? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> you know, I I could have swore that I have seen a publication be referred to as a Picayune, but I don't I don't know. I mean, it's almost like the Tattler or something like that, I guess. Maybe it's just some kind of uh, slang term for something that gives out the news. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But um, but I know I can't pull the uh, I can't pull the origin out of my hat right now. OK, well, we won't dwell on that any longer because we are introduced to our first villain in this sequence, the music meister. Master. Oh, yes. Music meister. Music master. I said meister again. Yeah. Music. Here we go again. God. I did it too. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we're going to have a hard time saying music master and not music meister because of the Brave and the Bold episode. Uh-huh. 
Music Meister. <laughs> Things Even Sergeant O'Shaughnessy doesn't sound like Music Meister. Put the, <laughs> yeah. the Stradivarius down. Right. That's a really bad accent. I'm sorry. I can't even. I can't even. I can't even <laughs> copy it. I thought it was pretty good, actually. Uh, uh, you grew up watching Adam West. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, yeah, Chief O'Hara. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And that's basically who we've got there. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's kind of funny because Bruce Tim says, you know, he said some people didn't like this, the, the, this two-parter because they didn't get it or they thought they were just trying to, like, riff on the Batman 60s TV show. And he said that wasn't their goal. But there's still quite a bit of 66 Batman in this episode. There is. Uh, yeah, I mean, he can say that all he wants, but Sergeant O'Shaughnessy, and we'll get to the phone and all that stuff later, but yeah, it's there, there's quite a bit. Holyisms, things like that, so... Uh, yes, there are a few holy words, aren't there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the music master, uh, voiced by actor Udo Kier, uh, mm-hmm. who's, been in, who's been in many, many things, but early in his long career played Dr. Frankenstein and Dracula and Andy Warhol's rather strange adaptations of that material. Uh, that you kind of got to see to believe. So, <laughs> uh, the music master is based on the Flash JSA fo- the Fiddler. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of a fiddle, he's got uh, he's got an accordion, and he drives yeah. a, a clarinet car. <laughs> the, cl- the clarinet car is so goofy, yet it's fantastic. I'll tell you. I love it. I'm sorry, but <laughs> my mind went in the gutter when I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, if you've ever seen that Simpsons episode where Homer buys the big, long car. No, it's um, Family Guy with Peter Griffin buys the big, long car and he goes into the tunnel. Oh, yeah. And that's what went through my head. Oh, okay, okay. And I'm sorry, my mind went in the gutter. <laughs> well, you see, we're laughing at it, so you just dragged us into the gutter with you. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's exactly where my mind went when I saw that. Why don't we talk about the accordion instead, then? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the... The, the the fiddler used to have a a, a fiddle mm-hmm. as his namesake weapon, and of course, I thought that was very fitting that we see the music master when we first see him. Is he's holding a Stradivarius, mm-hmm. kind of a nod to that. But you know, just changing it to an accordion is very ridiculous, which works for the show. But to be honest, an accordion as a weapon actually works to me because we get this slight sense of foreboding every time he pulls the bellows out. Mm. Because we know something nasty is going to happen when he pushes the billows back in, so I, th- I thought that was actually pretty brilliant. Yeah, that's 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 a good. That's, that's, that's a, it also is practical because it provides a shield, you right? Know, yeah, big, you know, yeah, that's right. And he can keep some real estate. There. He's got it strapped onto him so he won't drop it like mm-hmm. the fiddler could drop his fiddle. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, you have to wonder if James Tucker, who designed all the villains in this episode, didn't remember this character. When designing the music, Meister, because they both were purple, and Neil Patrick Harris is in this episode as a different character, but, you know. Right. And all these villains uh, have a very Dick Sprang uh, look to them. Uh, you know, he's a huge, Tucker's a huge fan of Dick Sprang, the oh, yes. Batman artist, and, and uh, Dick Tracy creator Chester Gould. And uh, that aesthetic is obvious here, and of course, that's basically the look of Batman, the Brave and the Bold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also storyboarded the Legends of the Dark Knight segment that was based on Dick Sprang's right. artwork. So we get, I, I'd love to see, of course, we got the Brave and the Bold out of it, but I would love to see James Tucker just go nuts with more 
Dick Sprang type characters somewhere. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I actually saw a recent uh, drawing by James Tucker of a Batman Brave and the Bold with Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they had the they had the Brave and the Bold Dick Sprangish Joker and and Flat Top in the background, and I thought that was just so brilliant. Right. That looked really nice. Yeah, I saw that too. I think it was on the back issue Facebook group or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, now we start to meet our guest heroes. Uh, Tom Turbine is actually the most unique of these heroes, I, I believe. He's an uh, amalgamation of the Golden Age Adam and the Golden Age Superman, and maybe just a hint of a few other characters like maybe Starman, the Star Spangled Kid because of the belt. Uh, and I think there's a dash of that scientist hero of the 50s, like 50 sci-fi films that inspired Reed Richards later on, too. He's got that yeah. 50 scientist hero vibe, so I, I like him. There was actually an old hero um, who was part of uh, Thunder Agents called Dynamo, mm-hmm. who had a power belt that was very similar to to what I saw in Tom Turbine as well. Now, in the original um, treatment, he was supposed to be the Atom, and uh, and my take on it was that he was supposed to be the 1950s style Atom, where he had the fin, okay, on yeah. the hood, as yeah. opposed to the um, the full face mask that we saw in All Star Squadron. Yeah, and he'd got the atomic punch by then, too. So yeah, yes, exactly. He had yeah. superpowers by then. Yeah, yeah. I, I love I love how Tom Turbine is always squinting. Well, except when his belt was torn off or a, a couple other scenes where he, you actually do see his eyes. But but he's mostly squinting the whole time. It's, 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 uh, it's great. <laughs> yeah, he's got the Golden Age Superman look that was also the look of Captain Marvel, too. So, yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a it's a nice nod to that that golden age alpha male hero, but he's short. I like that he's short like the um, the golden age Adam. Not quite as short, mm-hmm. but he is shorter than the other male heroes, which I think is neat. Yeah, um, I think that works. He's actually a little shorter than Black Siren too, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I need to take a look again, but I I seem to recall that he was the shortest of the group. Oh, okay. Uh, he is voiced by utility replacement actor Ted McGinley. Uh, who seemed to make a career out of successfully replacing actors who left Happy Days, The Love Boat, and Married with Children. He would later fill that role in the finale of Tucker's Batman, The Brave and the Bold, replacing Aquaman voice actor John DiMaggio in a very mm. meta moment. So, <laughs> Well, that was, that was also, um, if I may, th- th- that was also the, the so-called notorious reputation that Ted McGinley had about shows that jump the shark because once he guest stars on a show, basically that, that show will be canceled <laughs> within a season. And I'm glad that Justice League was one of those exceptions. Right. <laughs> yeah, me too. Now, he did get a long run out of Married with Children, but but yeah, he did. He, he, he replaced a lot of actors on shows that just, you know, he was kind of the utility guy. Also in Revenge of the Nerds, people might remember him from that too. And to be honest, when I heard Tom Turbine, I did not hear Ted McGinley as well at all. You know, the, the, the voice that I'm used to hearing of Ted McGinley. So, you know, I was almost kind of surprised it was him when I saw the credits. Yeah, that's that's I, he does not he he did like affect a different voice here. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't yeah. quite sound like his normal voice. Uh, did you guys catch the look on Flash's face when Tom Turbine shows up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got to do a screen grab of that because he's just like 
Say what? I mean, it's, it's just—it <laughs> is so cartoony. It's—it's <laughs> yeah. it's probably pushing about as broad as the show needs to go, but I—I I really do like it. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't know if I—I I, I think he was actually groaning at the "crime doesn't pay" line. Mm, he might be at that—that that look on his face. It was just. Yeah. Um, Catman and Black Siren then arrive. Catman is based on both Wildcat and the Golden Age Batman complete with the utility belt. Uh, he is voiced by actor Stephen Root, best known probably as the revenge-seeking, mumbling Milton from Office Space. And he was also in Dodgeball, a true underdog story, and a ton of stuff. You know the guy. He was on news radio. Uh, mm. He later voiced the Penguin, Wo- Woozy Winks, and Killer Croc on, again, Batman the Brave and the Bolts. <laughs> yeah, I think one of his few voice actor roles before uh, Justice League was in Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot. Mm, okay. Um, I think he was the scientist. Okay, that was the Frank Miller, uh, Jeff uh, Darrow... Um, Jeff Darrow. Yeah, yeah, it was a comic strip, but it was turned into a Saturday morning cartoon. Right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't know he was on that. Oh. Yeah. But I think it was best known for news radio and office space at the time of this show anyway. Right. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Black Siren is one of the more obvious analogs bearing a striking resemblance to the earliest version of Black Canary. She's mm-hmm. voiced by Jennifer Hale, whose voice acting CV is full of comic characters from Spider-Woman on the 90s Iron Man series the Giganta and Killer Frost on this show, I saw Batman, the Brave and the Bold, and Carol Danvers slash Miss Marvel on Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And she recently voiced Cinderella in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Which I still haven't seen yet. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually very good. Yes, I just is. saw it last weekend with, uh, with my kids. See, Chris and the kids went, and I think I had to work or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was like the so. day before Thanksgiving, and I yeah. took the kids. I was off, yeah. Sorry. you suck. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. He's got more vacation time than I do, so, you know, he sucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do like how, going back to Black Siren, if I may, I do like how she you look at her, and she's pretty much the spitting image of, of the early Golden Age Black Canary back when she wore a mask, with uh-huh. the exception of, you know, arm-length gloves and the full body stocking in, in place of the fishnets and the jacket, but it's a very, very sleek design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bruce Tim points out that he really liked that design. Of course, it kind of makes sense if you know what Bruce Tim likes to design, draw in his spare time. Yeah, so. huh. <laughs> but it is a really nice, it is a really nice design. I think it's one of the, I like the designs of all the characters, but I particularly like that one, yeah. I um, agree. Both Wildcat and Black Canary were known to ride motorcycles in the comics, so this intro makes a lot of sense. Although it is kind of surprising that two non-powered folks could just knock out Green Lantern, though. So. <laughs> yeah, I think he was more surprised than anything else. Yeah, he's this caught off guard, plus the fact that he's dealing with, okay, wait a minute, I know these characters, which he kind of doesn't, you know, you get a couple moments of him like, what? But they, they save his surprise for when he sing, sees Green's Guardsmen, which, mm-hmm. which of course makes sense. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, both Jean and Hot Girl, uh, make pop culture comments. Uh, Jean says, it seems we're not in Metropolis anymore, which, you know, of course, <laughs> <laughs> not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Um, and not like Green Lanterns, just read, yeah, I got that. You know, that's, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> and Hot Girl says, at some point says, curiouser and curiouser, which from Alice in Wonderland. So I guess our 
alien friends have been boning up on Earth culture. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. Yes. Uh, Makes well, we, perfect sense. Yeah, we know John likes to watch 50s detective movies, right? That's, you know, <laughs> according to different versions. So, you know, and speaking of pop culture, may I just say, while we're still on the subject of Catman, his musical theme is just awesome. Mm hmm. Yes. All 21 seconds of it that we get in this episode where, where they're chasing um, sportsmen on, on the in the truck. And I know that we're we're getting ahead of ourselves, but, you know, it has that 1950s brass vibe. And and it's also a little reminiscent of the 1966 Batman TV show, in a sense. Mm hmm. And, yep. and it's I just say it's such a pity that this bit of music was not included in the Justice League soundtrack compilation. Oh, yeah. Because I, you know, I would just run my air hawk down the hallway at full speed to that music. <laughs> That'd be awesome, yeah. <laughs> it would be awesome, but I can't do it. <laughs> Get on that uh, La La Land Records, put out a volume two, you know. Please, please put out a volume two. <laughs> uh, Green Guardsman makes a dramatic entrance, and he is clearly based on Golden Age Green Lantern Alan Scott. And he is voiced by someone who is no stranger to superheroics, the greatest American hero himself, William Cat. And that's just awesome. <laughs> that's why I said to believe it or not, William Cat. Yeah, you get that? You catch I mean, that? <laughs> yeah, I, I got you did. it. I, I caught that. Yeah, got, I get that. <laughs> I got that reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks, thanks, uh, uh, GL. Uh, <laughs> in addition to horror genre cred like Carrie and House, Cat also voiced a true JSA member playing Hawkman on, again, Batman the Brave and the Bold. These guys all come back for Batman the Brave well, and yeah, the Bold. Yeah. <laughs> Andrea Romano uh, called him back up and said, hey, you know, uh, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't she? They were great in this. So uh, I do like, now you pointed out, Zoom, that we have constructs, yes. ring oh, constructs. <laughs> a jackhammer, a birdcage, an anvil, a boxing glove. A catcher's mitt, an energy hand. Yes. Hawkgirl was wrong when he said when she said that Green Guardsman is no Green Lantern. He is definitely a Green Lantern. Right. Yes. And and Bruce Tim pointed out that you know in the commentary track that you know they they did have some fun with the constructs and I think this was kind of they were starting to kind of figure out. It took them a long time, but they finally could come around to the fact that no. These really are fun. They're not goofy. Right. It's part of the character. Just embrace it. Run with it. They thought people would, you know, say, ah, why would you make a giant hand and stuff? Right. But it's just, it's such a nice, it's a visual medium, and it's such a cool little visual trick that it just works, you know? So. Yeah, it, it's it's just not Green Lantern without constructs, in my opinion. Right. And, and I like how the color of this, it looks more like, it's like a light lime, like a, more of a chartreuse uh, color. Than than John's constructs, so I, I kind of or his energy uh, <laughs> didn't really make constructs. I, I like how you know they they do make them look different, so I think that's nice. Yeah. Uh, the speedsters of two worlds meet when the streak appears, and obviously the streak is based on Jay Garrick's original Flash, including the helmet headgear, and he was voiced by David Naughton, who most certainly is best known as the titular lycanthrope. In a, an American werewolf in London and the Dr. Pepper guy back in the 70s. So, <laughs> yes, those song and dance ads were actually pretty brilliant. You know, they're hokey, but they're fun. Mm hmm. <laughs> they, well, they don't they don't do ads like that anymore. No, they don't. And we all still remember them. So, 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there you go. You know, of course, I know we're older, but we still we do still remember them. So. Speak for yourself. <laughs> you remember them too, don't you? No. No. <laughs> She's lying. <laughs> It may be before her time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm nine months older than you. How's it before your time? <laughs> it was before my wife's time. I'll tell you that. Oh, was it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, going back, but going back to the helmet, I do like how, um, how Bruce Tim he, he designed the characters, right? I, I do like how he replaced the Mercury helmet of Jay Garrick with that 1950s-style Formula One racing helmet with the bill in the front and the goggles. It's, uh, it's very fitting. Yeah, it's really nice. Nice crash helmet look. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and did you hear the speed effects when he runs? It's that old swoosh sound effect used for Superman's flight on the old Super Friends program. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. I didn't really catch that. Nice catch. That's nice. Yeah. I love that. It's a, it's a very cool touch. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So any particular favorites among the Justice Guild for you two, Zoom? Oh, I just love Green Guardsmen with all the constructs. Yeah, that's hard to beat. What about you, Cindy? I, I like Tom Turbine just because he's a scientist and he's brought, you know, he sees the bigger picture. So oh, no, That's cool. Yeah, I'd probably have to go Green Guardsmen or The Streak because I think just because I like you know, because I love Alan Scott and Jay Garrick so much, I think mm. it's part of it. It just it kind of feeds into that because Alan Scott's my favorite Green Lantern. So yeah. So although John's like now now that we've done this show, he's like bumping up. He's like totally leapfrogged over Hal for me now. So so I've become more of a even more of a fan going through these episodes uh, episode by episode. So. Um, so we have uh, Ray Thompson. We meet Ray. He's a character we'll learn more about in part two. Uh, the character is based on several sources. Tim cites that the JLA's original mascot, Snapper Carr, who, of course, appears on this series as a newscaster. That's one of the inspirations, but there's obviously a, quite a bit of Burt Ward's Robin and Ray with all the holyisms, as we talked about. Uh, there's, uh, there are also quite a few regular kid sidekicks in the golden age. Like our man had a group of kids that helped him. So the idea of like a normal kid and like normal clothes being a sidekick is something that was also prevalent in the golden age. And then of course, another inspiration was comic creator and huge JSA fan, Roy Thomas, who was indeed a member of the junior justice society of America. And uh, Roy was one of the early comic fans pushing editor Julius Schwartz to revive the JSA in the JLA's letter column. So makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know that the Junior Justice Society actually appeared in comic book stories as a group of kids that kind of created their own little club based on the Justice Society? And and there were a few comic stories in which they would actually help solve crimes with the justice society in the background. Yes. Yes. I, I, I remember reading about that in the, and Roy Thomas's all-star companion books. Oddly enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this is Ray is almost like snapper Carr as a member of the junior justice society in my mind. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Tim also said there's a little bit of Ray Bradbury in him too, because Ray Bradbury was, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a was a fan of science fiction before he became a huge science fiction author. And he often wrote stories that, touched upon nostalgia while dealing mm. with problems in the present so that it makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. there's kind of a Ray Bradbury ish twist toward the end of this too, as well. So, uh, we won't get into that, but, uh, 
Uh, as we said earlier, Ray is voiced by Neil Patrick Harris, who probably doesn't need any introduction, but just on the superhero side of things, uh, he not only voiced the Music Meister, as we talked about, he voiced Spider-Man on the early 2000s CGI series that was on MTV, he was The Flash in Justice League The New Frontier, and he was Nightwing in Batman Under the Red Hood. So, lots of comic book cred for Neil Patrick Harris, and there's probably some I'm leaving out, and you know, Dr. Horrible sing-along blog and and all that stuff. So, yeah, he's he's all over the place. He's Neil Patrick Harris. Of course he is. So. Well, and Danny's favorite series, you know. Oh, he's on, yeah, he's on the series of Unfortunate Events. She loves that show. Yeah. He's, he's uh, what's his name? Uh, Orlock, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Count Orlock. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think at the time of, of this episode when it came out, he was probably best known as Doogie Howser. Right. right. As well as that brilliant yet misunderstood series called Stark Raving Mad. Mm. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. This was before How I Met Your Mother. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I, I do like the streak says, no one who risks his life to save another could be evil. <laughs> <laughs> Knock off that evil now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the Justice Guild has a headquarters that isn't a brownstone like the JSA, but it's a normal building, although it's a mansion. And I, didn't I think look, it's a reused mansion, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I didn't look it up. I meant to check the episode out, but according to D, the DCAU.fandom wiki, it has a similar design or maybe the same design as the Joker's mansion in the new Batman Adventures episode, Joker's Millions. So, you know, why not? You know, why not reuse it? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, they've reused footage before. What's one? What's one building design, right? Oh yeah, the whole the whole Flash thing from the the uh, uh, the episode with uh, Wonder Woman on Themyscira that were yes. computer banks in the background in the <laughs> in the ancient temple. <laughs> well, that 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 was the that was the um, oh, oh goodness, what was that device in the old nineteen forties Wonder purple Woman ray. books? Yeah, the purple, the purple ray, ray or the magic sphere. It was the magic sphere. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, of course, inside the telepathic the, radio computer banks. There you go. That's right. Yeah. Uh, of course, the Justice Guild's logo is straight up a riff on one often seen in JSA Tales, and the round table points right toward the cover of All Star number three. In fact, there's a shot of them slightly overhead that looks just like the cover, pretty much of mm-hmm. All Star number three, which I think is really really cool. That's a nice that's a nice visual nod and. <laughs> What do you guys think about the roll call? <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, you know that that's why they don't read out the roll call you know, when you're reading the comics. I mean that that you know every single Justice Society comic and Justice League comic at the time in the 40s and 50s and 60s would actually have the roll call on page one, mm-hmm. so that you would know which characters were actually going to be in the story. Right. That's so right. I thought it was a neat, I thought it was a neat little nod, but yes, I have to I have to uh, sympathize with Flash, who said he was about to bust a gut after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Uh, now we get to Hot Girl and uh, her mm. dealing with uh, Black Siren's duties on the team. Of Cindy, what, oh, do, you, what do we think of this? <laughs> a lot of horse shit. <laughs> Exactly what I think. <laughs> it is, but I, I you know. I, oh, defend it! I dare you. 
It's period. You gotta sleep tonight. It's period appropriate for the comic books. I mean, they had Wonder Woman as their secretary. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the unassuming ra- sexism and racism, for that matter, was was one of those not so admirable traits of the so called idyllic nineteen uh, fifties American society. Right. Um, I'm glad they brought it on the show myself because you could see the reactions of the more modern justice leaguers that can kind of help give viewers a sense of how far America had supposedly come right in the early noughties when this, um, when this aired. But as we can now see in today's trying times, we actually still had a far, far way to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. True. True that. Yes, definitely. I'm just surprised that, Afterwards, Hot Girl didn't take Flash behind the building and make him into a little puddle. <laughs> I do love her line. It's like you'd be the would it be the fastest man alive with a limp? Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, Cookie!" Oh. <laughs> oh, so the way he delivers that line too is so. I mean, it's like she's got cookies, but he's calling her Cookie. You know, so it's like. Ooh. <laughs> Again, and, and like I that, said, you have to sleep tonight, so watch yourself, son. I, I'm, I, I'm just... And you sleep in bed beside me. <laughs> I'm not I'm, siding I'm not with him. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not siding with him. I'm just saying it was funny. So there. I, I did notice that the, the, mm. the one with the hypermetabolism that has to eat a lot decided not to take a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> After that. Smart man. This can't be real. (laughs) Tell me about it. I almost busted a gut during that roll call routine. It's not that. It's the Justice Guild. They're comic book characters. What? When I was a kid, my Uncle James had the biggest comic book collection I'd ever seen. I'd go to his house every day after school, and we'd read old comics all afternoon. So? So, The Street, Tom Turbine, Green Guardsman, they were the stars of my favorite comic book, The Justice Guild of America. This is too weird. I know it sounds corny, but those comics taught me what it meant to be a hero. Without them, well, maybe I wouldn't have this ring today. Okay. Zoom, when when it came up, and I had forgot about that in this episode, it came up that that Green Lantern learned about all this, learned about the, the Justice Guild... Through his uncle's comic books, and I, I that immediately I thought, can relate. Yes, <laughs> we all we all know of your your uncle and how he ushered you into into comics. So I thought that was that's so fitting that you're the guest on this episode. <laughs> yes, thank you. And and to be honest, my uh, my wife jokes that it was my reading comic books as a kid that kind of led to my noble disposition and those were her words not mine mm. I, I think there's i think there's too, a lot to that i mean i'm not you know trying to you know put myself on a a pedestal or anything but i, I do think comics you know can you know they they kind of they can teach you right from wrong i mean they bygone comics not yeah <laughs> yeah I'm sorry yeah. yeah yeah unfortunately yeah i mean you know that that the shades of gray. I mean, there's so much gray now in comics that that it's just mud, basically yeah, muddy water. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, and you know the comics we read growing up, and even the older comics. Um, you know, there, there's there's I think there's something to that 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 helps uh, kind of uh, kind of build your moral code. And uh, and I, I get what Green Lantern's talking about, and we see that in these characters here. I mean, yes, there is some. There's some things about the way that life was back then with like with the sexism and the casual racism we'll get to later. 
that uh, that are unfortunate, but for the most part, uh, you know, it's th- th- they're they're good examples to live by. So yeah, um, it's it does sound it might sound corny, but hey, you know, <laughs> I think we turned out all right. We face a new threat. They wore different costumes. But they had the same amazing powers as our sworn enemies, the Streak and Green Guardsmen. Fiddlesticks. The Justice Guild foiled your crime, and rather than admit you dropped the ball, you blame these phantom heroes. Cool it, sportsman. You want a piece of me, Dr. Blizzard? (laughs) Enough squabbling. I propose a contest. No, a wager. A bet? I'm game. Each of us will see who can pull off the most spectacular crime. The winner will earn the honor of devising a plan to destroy the Justice Guild, in addition to making these new heroes disappear forever. Now we meet the Injustice Guild, which of course is an analog for the Injustice Society, and uh, there's a painting on the wall of another person... Mm. Who looks like some historical figure? You think that's their Vandal Savage? Maybe. I thought it was Vandal Savage. Yeah, yeah. I thought who so who who was one of the founding members of the Injustice Society in the right. comic books? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, definitely. And we will see Vandal Savage later on in the season, just not yet. But uh, uh, but I thought that was a, and who knows with him? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he hasn't hopped worlds at some point. Right, so right. it could even be Vandal Savage. So uh, I thought that was cool. Uh, you know what was also cool in that scene, if I may, Joe, sure, was that that whole sequence where the villains were kind of introducing themselves, except for Sir Swami, he doesn't introduce himself. And again, we'll get to that. Um, but but the the room is lit by candlelight, mm. and all of the shadows are flickering throughout oh. that whole sequence. And I thought it was just brilliant. The highlights are flickering, and the shadows are flickering on every one of those characters as they're talking. Wow, that's cool. I hadn't even caught that. That's really nice. Yeah, it, it, you know, and that that ties in a lot of times in comic books to set creepy mood. What would they show? A candle, you know, mm-hmm. in Golden Age books, they'd show. I mean, even when or a solemn moment when when Batman swears Robin in, and you know he takes the oath. There's a candle, you know. So it just it just meant like you know dark, kind of somewhat creepy, somewhat solemn, you know. So that that that's cool. I hadn't caught that. That's really neat. Uh, Sportsman here is based very closely on the Green Lantern villain, the Sportsmaster. He's voiced mm-hmm. by Michael McKeon, still best known for playing Lenny on Laverne and Shirley, and also being in This Is Spinal Tap and Clue, which Rob just covered recently on Film and Water. And as far as comic credits go, he would go on to play Perry White on Smallville, and he's also married to Annette O'Toole, who mm-hmm. played Lana Lang and Martha Kent on Smallville. Lana Lang here we go. In Superman three, and uh, he's also he also voices Sergeant O'Shaughnessy in these episodes as well. So. Yes, and, and we'll... Irish accent. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'd hate to get ahead of ourselves, but at the end of part two, we realized that he was faking that accent the whole time. Mm. <laughs> That's true. That's right. Because <laughs> right at the end, when he's thanking them, you know, thank you for giving us back our world, he's talking like normal. <laughs> Right. I, I mean, yeah. It's, it's if, pro- if, yeah. If you call it normal, I'm sorry. You know, normal has such a broad definition. Right. Yeah. He's just a non-accent. <coughs> yeah. There you go. 
which I guess we all have accents. I mean, Cindy and I obviously have accents, although I always people point out our accents, and I'm like, we have accents. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I I actually have no accent, which is why people have a hard time finding out who I am. That's probably why I sound more Caucasian than a Caucasian. Okay, <laughs> Caucasian. I like that. <laughs> But, but going back to sportsman, I really love how he's wearing different sports uniforms at once, essentially. I mean, he's got a baseball cap and then he's got the football shoulder plaids and the tennis socks and the golf cleats. I mean, it's all it, it's uh, it's all charmingly goofy. It yeah. looks like a four-year-old dressed himself. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but that's a four-year-old dressing himself. He looks more sporty than like the standard sportsmaster outfit that he had with the the handkerchief type mask and the the puffy jacket and you know I mean he looks he's like selling the sports angle more than Sportsmaster did. Yeah, and that and that that again is akin to the 1960s Batman TV show, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have a gimmick, you know. Get get the look. <laughs> you know, it just popped in my head. I didn't write this down, but his face kind of reminds me of the old dc caricature of bob hope that they used in the bob hope comics mm. yep uh, so it's and he was you know bob hope was known to play golf so maybe that had something to do with it i don't know <laughs> um dr blizzard is based on another green lantern foe the icicle and is voiced by Corey burton as you pointed out uh mm. who is a voice acting mainstay and has played tons of roles for brainiac as you mentioned, on Superman and Justice League, and we will see him again on Justice League. Just a little spoiler warning for later episodes of Justice League in Season 2. Uh, good things to come from Corey Burton on on this show. So, yep. And he was also the voice of the ice cream truck driver and the mayor Oh, yeah. in this episode as well. Okay, yeah, he's... he's He's like the uh, he's like a, a Frank Welker type, you know. He's he's oh he's yes everywhere. <laughs> oh yeah, and if you need if you need uh, somebody to mimic one of the old radio announcers of the day, the fifties and sixties, you know, like in uh, Justice League New Frontier, that was most likely Corey Burton. Oh okay okay, oh all right. Well, if we ever need somebody to do that, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt we can afford him. <laughs> yeah, I may still have his phone number. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, it's you, been only it's been only eighteen years. Well, you actually get Shannon Farnan to come on your show and do voices. So, I, who knows? With you, you might actually get him on there. So. <laughs> well, she's she's a friend, and and she's she's way too generous. But um. <laughs> <laughs> he's got Wonder Woman on speed dial. <laughs> I, I do have Wonder Woman on speed dial, but uh, Corey, Corey Burton's just a casual acquaintance. So. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, Sir Swami is based on the JSA foe, The Wizard, and is voiced by Jeffrey Jones, best known for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Beetlejuice, and unfortunately some things we already talked about when we talked about Jeffrey Jones on our Sleepy Hollow episode of of House of Frankenstein, so let's not get into that stuff. Let's. let's... Oh, you're talking about Mom and Dad Save the World, are you? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> or Howard the Duck. Uh, <laughs> I wish, you know, it's the, yeah, but let's, let's, it's all right. We won't go there. Let's, let's not go there. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, Sir Swami's look is very reminiscent of Sargon the Sorcerer. Yes. So just like, just like Music Master with the Stradivarius, it was very apt to have Sir Swami robbing a ruby. Mm, the ruby the of life yeah yeah well it was the flame of rasputin but yeah <laughs> it looked like the ruby of life enough to me right that's that's good that's good call yeah 
so what was so you were going to tell us something about his name? He didn't. Yeah. Well, have, have you noticed that nobody referred to him by name throughout this entire two episodes, with the exception of Ray Thompson's recap of the Blimp Rescue mm. in part two? That's the only time you hear Sir Swami's name mentioned by name. When I talked with Corey Burton for the 2002 comic book, or sorry, comics to film interview, um, we talked about his experience recording the episode. Now, Corey had literally conducted hundreds of voice sessions between his Legends recording, which was the week of July 30th, 2001, and our interview in, in January 2002. So he could not recall too many details in regards to the story itself or even which actor played what character at the time. But when I had brought up the subject of his character's name um, being changed, that his Dr. Blizzard character was originally named the Icicle, um, he, he did recall that when I brought it up. So when we were talking about the subject of character names being changed from the original uh, Justice Society, he mentioned that he thought that they had to actually change the name of another character during the recording session itself. And this is in line with what Bruce Timmons stated in interviews where he said that they had to clear the new names with Warner's legal department in the 11th hour actually during while they were at the recording booth. So I was presuming that the replacement name – um, that they had on the final scripts, and one of them did not clear legal review. Mm. And this is speculation, but I suspect that the name that had to be changed was whatever they were going to call the wizard character, which eventually became Sir Swami. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense because he doesn't introduce himself like the others do. Like you said, yeah. In that one, in that one scene, they're they're intentionally calling each other by name, <laughs> so right. that you know who these characters are. But then, Sir Swami just ends up going, "I propose a wager," and nobody says who he is. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the crisis effect where everybody introduces himself. What do you think about yes. it, Commandy? I don't know, Superman from Earth Two. What do you think about it, Blue Beetle from Earth Four? You know, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But it, but again, this is pure speculation on my part, based on you know the, those just that that bit of information. And you know, Corey did say that he thought that had happened. So you know, as again, he couldn't fully recall the particulars of that session. So oh, interesting. That's that's. I wonder what he could have been. It's it's like the warlock or something, or you know, some, who knows? The, uh, but something probably Marvel owned and like, oh, we can't call him that. Uh, so. <laughs> quite, quite possible. Doctor Strange. No, you can't use that. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, I think it's the villains actually having a contest amongst themselves. That's that's another straight out of the Golden Age concept. Uh, which yes. I, I, I love that. That's just so much fun. I'm sure viewers under 30 were like going, wait, they're betting who could pull off the best crime so that they can come up with a plan to kill the other heroes what the what uh-huh. <laughs> but, but that's what the golden age villains were really like right yeah it's like right. yeah i mean a little bit a little of that bleeds into you know all super villainy that's the whole you know scott evil thing with dr evil like i got a gun in my room i can just go shoot him right now you know that type of Oh, if only they use their. If only they wouldn't use their capabilities for evil instead of interviewing or entertaining children at uh, birthday parties. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. That's that's one of my favorites in this whole. It's, it's right. It's right out of Get Smart. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
it's also very Adam West. I could hear Adam West saying that too. So yeah, yeah, it's also melodramatic. It's yeah. it's 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 wonderful. I I I know Cindy. It's probably making in probably made you roll your eyes a lot. No. <laughs> Uh, uh, I should not presume to know you that well, but oh no, it did. <laughs> your <Yeah>. speculation. <laughs> oh, purely correct. It's just, <laughs> um. I have a theory on how you came to be here. As an expert in nuclear physics, I have long hypothesized that there are an infinite number of parallel dimensions, each containing its own planet Earth. Each Earth occupies the same location in space, but vibrates at a different speed. Flash. The energy blast you absorbed caused you to match the vibration rate of our Earth. So he created a tear in the dimensional barriers which brought us here. Hey, it was an accident, okay? But this still doesn't explain the Justice Guild comics I read when I was a kid. Perhaps the creators of those comics had a subconscious link to this Earth. What they thought was merely imagination was a psychic memory of the Justice Guild's real exploits. I couldn't have put it better myself. Of course, Tom Turbine, uh, we go back to the JGA headquarters, and Tom Turbine, he explains the uh, parallel world theory, which is exactly the basis of the DC multiverse, even down to Flash vibrating to travel between them, and then John's John's theory about uh, comic writers tuning into the Justice Guild's world is also straight out of the comics, and, uh, you know, the Gardner Fox of Earth-1 dreamed of Earth-2's Jay Garrick and wrote about him. And, you know, I thought that was, that's a, that's a great little angle for them to, to bring into this. I, I really, I, I, as soon as that popped up, I remember thinking, oh, wow, it's the exact same. <laughs> you know, I remember those panels in comic books. <laughs> the Flash, Volume 1, Issue 123. Yes, exactly. Yes, Flash of Two Worlds. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then later we got Earth Prime and all that stuff, but you know, so, which was our world, but until they introduced Ultra, thanks. We wanted Ultra, not, uh, but you know. So. <laughs> uh, we get another great hot girl Black Siren moment about dessert. <laughs> She's like, I am not getting desserts. <laughs> 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 and then the letter arrives. Well, I mean, it's just, it just reminds me. I mean, things like that. We're, we're going to get dessert. It reminds me when I was a girl, the way it went in my family is, you know, you went to a family dinner and, you know, the women cooked and did all this stuff. And the men, man, the, excuse me, the men ate first, then the kids, and then the women ate what was left. And I would get in line with my dad. And I don't know how many times my grandmother would stop me, and she says, "Honey, the men eat first. I said, "I cook just as much as anybody else. I'm eating." <laughs> and bless my dad's heart, my dad's like, "She's hungry. She's eating with me." <laughs> he never let her pull me out of line. And I mean, I don't know how many times that went down, and it's it pissed my grandmother off till she. You know, till I was 30 years old, I did that. <laughs> and I still did it. And the only reason it stopped then is because she passed away. But I mean, you know, I'm just like, no, I, no. <laughs> Things like that just burn my ass. <laughs> and rightfully so. Right. Yeah. Rightfully so. I mean, and, and, you know, your grandmother was very much like Black Siren in this yes. episode where Black yes. Siren would take Hawk Girl's hand and go, let's let the men talk. Oh, and then, my God. And she's like, they can talk all they like. I thought that was a wonderful comeback. <laughs> yes. 
I can almost oh. see you saying that, Cindy. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. There, there, there's, there's definitely some a little bit of hot girl or in Cindy or vice versa. <laughs> Just don't betray us to Thanagar. Okay. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Christopher. Uh, yeah, that, that, was the, yeah, that was a funny little bit, though. But, yeah, Sergeant O'Shaughnessy comes up to the door, uh, you know, and, and I, I think – I love again. Hot girl, hot girl is our POV character for a lot of this stuff. She's like, what kind of villains tip off, you know, right. the crime? Which is like, well, every villain from the golden age up through the late silver age, as epitomized by the '60s Batman TV show, you know. So, and 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 they relied on the United States Postal Service, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I doubt that they actually walked up to police headquarters and walked inside going, here's a letter for you, Sergeant, and was just able to just walk out. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're in their headquarters, and he's like, you know, music master's like, I must send this this threat to the to the justice guild, but I don't have a stamp. Does anybody have a stamp? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you suddenly sleep into Arnold? <laughs> I, I need a stamp. I, I, no, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, Priceless. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I do. I do like how it was wax stamped. The envelope was wax stamped closed. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's probably got the official Injustice Guild seal on it. You know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of which, the heroes get decoder rings. Uh, which, oh yeah. <laughs> which is a nod to the Junior Justice Society. Uh, because they would get, you could get, if you joined the J- Junior Justice Society, you either got a badge early on or later on a patch that had right. the shield on it. Uh, so here they get rings, and but, I love Flash's comment about, ooh, nice plastic. <laughs> they, they did have decoder rings, the Junior Justice Society, but it wasn't a ring you wear on your finger. It was actually the, the code wheel right. that was referred to as a decoder ring back then. And uh, you they had codes... Um, they had codes based on each uh, member of the Justice Society. So you could use the Green Lantern code to send a message or the Hourman code or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. And I so think- you, turn, you turn the wheel until the character's name appears in the window. And then wherever the letters and the symbols line up, then you, then you would do your code. Right. Much like the scene in A Christmas, Christmas Story, Story. With, yeah. Ralph, with Ralphie and the little or- orphan Annie decoder, decoder pen. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think there were, according to Roy Thomas and the the all-star companions, there was, uh, a few characters that never got their code used. Like, I think like Dr. Midnight or somebody never got the never, I don't know if it was Dr. Midnight specifically, but I remember him saying like a handful of characters had a code and they never used it. It's like they kept using like Green Lantern and flashes over and over and over again or something like that. So it's like, oh, you know, Green Lantern was Green Lantern was was shown most often and went on solo missions more often on on those old Justice Society stories. So it it makes sense that some of them would be some of the codes, I guess, would have higher prominence as as the characters did. But they they would use the codes to basically give you a clue of what was going to happen in the next story. There'd be a code at the end of the story of the Justice Society, and then you would have to get your wheel out and and figure out what uh, what the what the title of the next adventure was going to be, or who the villain was going to be. Mm. It was very it was very clever. Yeah, I wonder if in issue fifty seven the code it, said uh, next issue the Trigger Twins take our place. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I should look that up. <laughs> 
I bet you it's in that all-star companion. I bet you can find it's in there. Oh no, I have the issue. I'll look it up. Oh, okay. Okay. You got, oh, you've got all-star number 57. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's in, it's in one of my boxes over there, but my son's help to get it out. So I'll, 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 I'll let you know. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let us know. <laughs> Uh, so the heroes decide to split off into teams, which of course is a tradition uh, in the uh, the old in the well actually in the Justice Society they started they used to have solo chapters and then toward the end of the run they'd start to do team up, uh, but like you said Green Lantern often had his own, but um, and of course the JLA always split off into teams and then when they had the JSA with them they'd mix like team members up you know a, a mix of the different groups and of course Flash picks black siren uh and <laughs> of course <laughs> let's just pick the person on the left of us and he races over beside her uh you know so i thought that was funny uh, i know I, w- I was so hoping that the flash would team up with the streak and that we would have that scene where they're running by the brick wall but no yeah that's a that's a missed opportunity mm-hmm. that's that's true yeah and, and yeah, but Flash is a horn dog, so there you go. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Different Flash. Different. But, Flash. but yes, the guard, the guard, the old Gardner Fox comic book um, device. It's not a trope. It's a device um, of splitting, splitting into smaller units to deal with with multiple threats. That's that's that um, that was very well done in this uh, in this episode. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, John, as you said, questions them endangering Ray, but Catman just ignores it. So. <laughs> sure thing, little buddy. <laughs> uh, uh, the guild automatically knows where to go because they are on every up on every social aspect of their town, uh, which is uh, you know they know which you know they know what everything that's on exhibit in town and all the museums, uh, which is. You know, Golden Age, Silver Age, uh, all the heroes always knew that stuff. And, of course, Batman 66, either uh, Adam West or Burt Ward would know, you know, according to what episode it was. Sometimes, you know, Robin would correct Batman and oftentimes Batman would correct Robin. But they always, one of them always knew. So, (laughs) yeah, it's always a, gee, fire, what could it be? It's simple, Robin. It can only mean one thing out of an entire town. Exactly. Right. Of eight million people. <laughs> With lots of fire things. Exactly. <laughs> Fire-related items. But it can only mean one thing. That's also very Gardner Fox, I think. Yes, I do too. Yeah, yeah. Of course, Green Guardsman is right about Hot Girl trying to smash that antique plane. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, maybe her wings blind her to the significance of aerial innovation. I don't know. But, but I mean, it is a treasure, you know? Right. I know he's a kind of corny the way he puts it across, but it's like, oh, honey, no, you can't just no, take a, I mean, you know. smash it up. And <laughs> what's the point of stopping him then? Yes. <laughs> but I, I thought it was nice. We have to use our wits. Yes. 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 I, I like that. That was a bit condescending, I think. But <laughs> yeah, it was. But I mean, at the same time, it's like you know it was a nice to run her up against because you know her her attitude is smash everything and you know at this point i mean yeah. she grows as a character a lot over the course of the series but at this point her her idea is just to to take that mace and smack it up against whatever gets in front of yeah. her so yeah. um you know she's, but, she's no nonsense that way and yeah yeah that's true yeah um I, we get to uh the uh the statue uh, the the fountain unveiling and I gotta say, of the prizes that they're trying to steal, 
this one seems kind of lame. How's he going to – who wants this fountain? Fountain, yeah. yeah what's, is it made out of platinum or <laughs> silver or, you know, it's like – is it going to melt but, it down? But, it, but it's a symbol of the mayor's further dedication to the city's future. Mm. So, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they had big giant scissors to cut the ribbon and everything. Right, yeah. <laughs> when the when Flash and, and Black Siren show up, I am kind of surprised that they, especially with her name being Black Siren, they didn't give her the Sonic, Sonic Cry. Cry. Right. Yeah, it's that kind of that kind of surprised me. I know that's more of a she got that late in the Silver Age, early Bronze Age, when she mm. migrated from Earth One to Earth Two. But I mean, Earth Two to Earth One. But at the same time, it's I just I kind of I kept waiting for her the first time we watched it to right, especially since we hadn't seen Black Canary on here yeah. yet. But it's you know, but it makes more sense, I guess, to keep her um, as just a you know judo master like the original Black Canary was. So, speaking of kind of eh, lame uh, trophies, uh, prizes, the clay court trophy is a bit of a stretch for an yeah. earth earth crime, I think. But <laughs> well, it is the sportsman doing the robbing, so right, yeah. he's, he's kind of his, right yeah. up his alley too. He's well, got his, again, he's pulling from the four year old's closet. So. <laughs> Well, he's got to, he's got two things he's got to do. He's got to pull off a earth crime and a sports crime. Oh. So you got to think about that. He's got two motifs he's got to you know stick with. So it, oh, okay. and and somehow the heroes knew that it was the sportsmaster that was going to do the earth crime. So the earth could only mean one thing. Yeah. Out of the entire earth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And did you notice? Did you notice he had this big huge truck? Yes. To haul away the trophy that he had in the cab with him next to the next to the driver's seat. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, <laughs> overkill there, dude. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah. stealthy. Yeah, exactly. It's probably not that fast either. Uh, speaking of fast, I think Catman's bike is a reuse of a model that we saw in Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and it's Dick's bike in Batman Sub-Zero, or it's very similar, if it's not uh, the yeah. exact, exact same one. Yeah. yeah. Those Vespers-type bikes were 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 well uh, represented in the old Batman, um, well, not the old, well, it is the old Batman yeah. animated series. Right, right, yeah, yeah. If, if the window washers that, you know, begin to fall look familiar... They are based on the designs of the animated Abbott and Costello series from the 60s that was done by Hanna-Barbera. And Charlton Comics actually did a comic based right. on that. So so we got a little Abbott and Costello cameo there, which I think is really cool. So Yeah. <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. It's kind of strange because, you know, they didn't – DC didn't publish that, but I guess – they own Charlton's IP. Actually, I guess, so <laughs> wasn't there one? Wasn't there one issue of Abbott and Costello that was DC? That was a DC comic. Maybe. Was. Maybe. Am That's I... another thing I'll look up. I'll look oh. it up and I'll let you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but now we can tie. Abbott, we can through Abbott and Costello, we can tie DC to the Universal Monsters. So that's all win-win for me. So there. Oh, we go. there you go. There you go. <laughs> now, why does Hot Girl? Tell Green Guardsman to stay there, and two, why does he listen? I think he's kind of getting intimidated. It's like, oh, wait, it's a strong woman. She ain't making no cookies for me. I'm staying here. 
hey, you know, he probably had a hard time stopping her with that catcher's mitt earlier. He doesn't want to mess with that again. Yeah. <laughs> her mace may be made out of aluminum. Mm. <laughs> well, that would explain how she was able to get out of the birdcage, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Aluminium. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, of course, his aluminum weakness is a nod to Alan Scott. I know. And Wood, but I'm just saying that for anybody that might not know. Alan Scott's ring could not uh, work, did not work on anything made of wood. Originally, it only worked on certain metals or whatever, and then they changed it to where it worked on everything but wood, which is like, really? Wood? Okay. <laughs> so. Well, you know, Hawk, Hawk Girl's reaction, terrific. It's just <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> pretty much pretty much says it all. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the imperiled nuns seem to come out of nowhere until you see part two, uh, but because uh, <laughs> I well, remember, you know, it was it was censorship. Oh, really? They think they think so? Hey, no, yes, because the Flash took away the head reflector from Doctor Blizzard and goes, "Face it, Blizzard, you don't have a snowball's chance in." Oh, and just before he said hell. <laughs> You get the bus horn. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Uh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. He I, I'm, I'm, ju- I'm just joking. I'm sorry. I derailed your train of thought. Please. Oh no, no, you're fine. No, you're, you're the good, good call. Yeah. I, this, this part with the fact that that there were nuns in danger and everything reminded me of some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. You know. I mean, it's the, the Adam West. <laughs> and why the tar paper didn't they just go ahead and smash the mirror thingy? Oh, while they had it? While they had it? I'm just going to hold it here, you know. Da, 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 da. Smush it! Yeah, and, and she didn't pick it up when she ran away. And so, yeah, but, uh, you know, she gets uh, she gets frozen solid. They both get frozen solid in a block of ice and Flash is knocked, un- Flash is knocked, un- knocked unconscious there. And she doesn't have any powers to get out. But we'll, we'll see how that goes for Flash in the next episode. But uh, uh, then yeah, John, I have a comment about that. You got a comment on that for next episode? No, for, for for next episode, yes. Or for no, I mean for for part two. Part two, part yes. Two. Not not our next episode, but the Justice League's next episode. Yeah, part two. Yeah, yeah part two. Uh, Jean's vision is again like a wake up call. Uh, I again, I kind of forgot about all that, and it's like, oh yeah, there's going to be some downer thing going on. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I'm having fun here, you know. Um, we see. When Hot Girl wakes up in the cemetery, of course, that's why she went off without Green Guardsman, uh-huh. so she could be knocked out and wake up in the cemetery alone. By herself. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. The plot required it. Exactly. They had it to, was in the script. It was in the script, right. Uh, we see Black Siren is Donna Nance, obviously riffing on Dinah Lance, and Green Guardsman is Scott Mason, yeah, of course, Alan Scott. And uh, you can. it's kind of hard to see, but between this one and the next one, you can see that Catman is T. Blake. And the Batman villain, Catman, is actually named Thomas Blake. Mm-hmm. So right. I thought that was kind of And Wildcat was Ted Grant, so the T could have stood for Ted. True. Right. That's right, too. So it could have been the two of them put together, yeah. Did, you notice, that, did you notice that the streaks, you could actually see part of the streaks uh, headstone? Yeah. And it, you could almost make out Jay Garrick as the name. Oh, uh-huh. I see. I didn't catch You guys caught I, that. I, I did. I didn't I did. catch that. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm, I need to get my glasses checked or something. I missed some details on this. <laughs> well, another another detail that was missed between the animators from from episode two to episode one is that the the headstones in episode one actually had the heroic symbols of each member at the top of the headstone. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in, in episode two, they don't. And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's another little nitpicky uh, mistake, I guess. No, I think I know. That's go ahead and point it out. I think yeah, I, I had noticed. I did notice that. So that's. <laughs> it's true. I saw the grave. But it doesn't make any sense. Look, I don't know who that is, but the real Green Guardsman is gone. And so are the rest of them. No, I don't believe it. He seemed to take this quite personally. I'll bring him back. Wait here for Flash. Part 2. The heroes, minus the missing Flash and Black Siren, reconvene at Justice Guild headquarters, where Hawkgirl tries to convince Green Lantern that his heroes are dead. He flies off in a huff and Hawkgirl follows. At the Injustice Guild's cliff abode, the villains compare the prizes they've stolen, but Dr. Blizzard is declared the clear winner of their contest when he arrives with the frozen Flash and Black Siren. The Justice Guild receives a call from Sergeant O'Shaughnessy on the hotline phone. The Injustice Guild has robbed the Seaboard City Mint on a Sunday. The Justice Guild sounds their battle cry, Let Justice Prevail, and head off after the villain's escape blimp. Meanwhile, at the cemetery, Hot Girl finds Green Lantern has accepted the truth. The Justice Guild are indeed dead. So the question remains, just who are these imposters they have been working with? John, I'm sorry. You were right. They're gone. All of them. Then who are those people back at the mansion? Robots? Clones? I don't know, but I intend to get some answers. Green Lantern stops the ice cream truck he saw before and questions the driver about the graves on the hill. The driver nervously tells the heroes that he has to get back to his route, but Green Lantern points out that he never seems to stop nor sell any ice cream. The driver begs him to stop questioning him, citing, He might hear you. He says no more and in a panic drives away. Elsewhere in the city, the Guild and Jean find the villain's blimp, with Flash and Black Siren tied to its side. The flying heroes attack, but the villains manage to take them out of action. As the last hero standing, Catman, accompanied by 30-some seconds of that sweet, sweet theme music by Lolita Romanas, rides his motorcycle into a skyscraper and launches himself at the blimp from the nearby rooftop. He then repels into the cabin and takes the villains by surprise. Green Lantern and Hawk Girl head to the city library, where they find both the building and the pages of the books are completely empty. That sounds like my nightmare. They also <laughs> find the door to the basement newspaper archives bricked off. A frustrated Hawk Girl smashes through with her mace, of course, and they find more than they bargained for a destroyed subway station, and a newspaper from 40 years ago. Remember this, 40 years. That's all I'm going to say when I get to my part, okay? <laughs> the very time when the Justice Guild's comic series ended, telling of an impending nuclear war. A subway station? Must have been an earthquake or something. No. These are battle scars. You're right. And look at the date. Forty years ago. The same date as the last Justice Guild comic. 
While Catman continues his battle on board the blimp, the Streak rescues Tom Turbine and Green Guardsman. Flash then uses his head wings to puncture the dirigible, causing the ship to sway. Sir Swami goes tumbling outside, only to be saved by Jean Jones. Tom Turbine saves Black Siren and Flash, and Catman tosses the villains onto Green Guardsman's waiting platform. As the police take the villains away, Flash notes they are the only cops he's seen in town. Back at their headquarters, a waiting Green Lantern and Hawk Girl cut the hero's victory short. Green Lantern accuses the Guild of being frauds and produces another newspaper with the headline, JGA Killed in Battle. Then, at the last second, Green Guardsman flies in and... Some friends. It's a good thing the Justice Guild was around to save me. They're not the Justice Guild. Say what? You heard me. They are not the Justice Guild. How can you say that? This is a serious accusation, young man. Explain yourself. No. You explain this. Justice Guild killed in battle. It's a hoax. Some kind of sick joke. It's no joke. The real street Green Guardsman, Tom Turbine, they're all dead. I've seen their graves. He can't be serious. Can he? I don't know. It sounds fantastic, but... Before the shaken heroes can fully comprehend what is happening, another hotline call comes in. Downtown Seaboard City is under a monster attack. Green Lantern uses his ring to stop the guild from running off. He and Hawkgirl point out the series of never-ending dangers, blank books, and other weird occurrences pointing out the fact that their reality is an illusion a recreation of a world destroyed 40 years ago. We're not done here. But Seaboard City needs us. Haven't you noticed that nothing here makes sense? Library books with blank pages, ice cream trucks that never stop. Dangers that spring up whenever someone gets too close to the truth. What truth? That your world is an illusion, a living memory of a civilization destroyed 40 years ago when the Justice Guild gave their lives for this Earth. That's why they stopped publishing the comic book in our world. No more Justice Guild. And any time someone starts to figure things out... Nuns and dynamite. When Tom Turbine asks who could be behind this illusion, Jean suggests they ask Ray. Ray? Why would I know anything? Because you are the source. No! <laughs> John touches Ray and declares he is the source of all of this. Ray screams in protest, but drops the illusion of being a young boy and reveals his true form of a small, disfigured mutant. Angered that his fantasy is ruined, Ray clobbers John with a mental blast and calls his giant robot monster to attack Justice Guild headquarters. Despite Green Lantern's protest, the Guild attacks the new threat. Lantern convinces his teammates that Ray is the true menace, and two battles begin. Ray's reality-warping powers easily defeat the Justice League. He lifts Green Lantern into the air and begins to torture him, clearly targeting him for destroying his world. The Green Guardsman sees this, and he and his teammates ponder what stopping Ray will do to them and their fabricated world. Ultimately, they decide to once again give their lives for their planet and race into action. Wait, if what they said is true... Defeating Ray could destroy this reality and everything in it. Including us. Ah! 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 
We died once to save this Earth, and we can do it again. You'll be sorry you messed things up! What is this? In Seaboard City, crime doesn't pay. They attack their former mascot, who is puzzled how his creations could turn against him. After a fierce battle, the guild's barrage is too much for Ray, and he falls, lifting the illusion of sparkling Seaboard City and leaving a devastated wasteland around him. Before Green Lantern's horrified eyes, the Justice Guild begins to fade, but not before the streak sends him a final salute. The Leaguers stand over the fallen body of Ray while Jean explains his abilities were the result of mutation caused by the nuclear war. He fashioned his reality around the heroes he worshipped as a boy. Ah, what happened? He couldn't maintain the illusion. The strain was too great. But how did he get like that? The radioactive fallout from the nuclear war mutated his DNA, giving him the psychic ability to mold this world to his choosing. So he chose to recreate it with the heroes he worshipped as a child. Who could blame him? Listen. The sound of the ice cream truck surprises the heroes as they find the townspeople they met were very much real, forced to play Ray's game for decades. While the League feels guilty for stripping away the illusion, the people are happy to have their freedom back, even in a world that they now must rebuild. The question remains, how do the Leaguers return home? Green Lantern follows a hunch and finds Tom Turbine's real transdimensional gateway buried beneath the side of their headquarters. As luck would have it, his power ring is enough to power the device, and they leap through the portal. You know, it is amazing how lucky these characters get when they're almost out of airtime. Right. I mean, there was literally there was literally an infinite number of possible Earths in which they could have arrived. Uh, well, infinity minus one, I suppose. And it just so happened that they ended up Oh, uh, back at the Watchtower, Flash fills Superman and Batman in on their adventure and the hotness of Black Siren. A somber Green Lantern stares out the window and ponders why he feels so melancholy. The Justice Guild they met weren't real after all. As she hugs his shoulder, Hawkgirl reminds him that their heroism and sacrifice was indeed real. You should have been there. It was so freaky. Those cornball villains with their bad puns and the heroes with the Dakota rings. What's up with that? Still, Black Siren was a hottie. Where's GL? Are you okay? It's stupid, really. Why should I feel like this? I mean, they weren't even real. They gave their lives for us. That's real enough for me. Oh, okay. So why would Ray leave the graves of the heroes visible? Thoughts? He's still looked up to them. I mean, you know, even though he didn't want to face the fact that they were dead in a small part of his mind, he did know that. It was a reverent thing. That's yeah. what I kind of thought too. I, that, yeah. That, that was my thought. Yeah. And, and why would he think anybody would ever from outside would ever come right to their world anyway? So yeah, I just, right. Didn't. And, 
And everybody seemed to know about the graves on the hill too. They just didn't talk about it. Right. They, yeah, <laughs> they didn't want it to. Yeah, we'll get into that, but yeah, it's there, there's some interesting thoughts about, about that. So, um, Green Lantern's reaction shows a softer side to the character that we haven't really seen before. And hot girls concern over the him, uh, you know, that that's softening her up too, as well. We're seeing, you know, these are the two tough guys on the team, you know, right. Uh, the two tough characters, I shouldn't say guys, two tough characters on the team. And, uh, but this, this episode goes a long way to kind of add, giving them some added dimension and, and a little more heart than they've had in the past. I think it's really nice. I mean, she's like, I'm sorry, John, you know, right there. She says it when, you know, at that right, you know, of course there's the end, but she tells him that when they're at the graveside too. So, um, it doesn't seem to now, now zoom, I, I bet you you're having a problem. I, I, I'm, I'm reading your mind here, but. I'm betting the Flash being frozen in the in ice with his head sticking out is kind of bothering you. Yes, probably because, you know, the very first appearance of the Flash in Superman the Animated Series had him vibrate out of a chunk of ice. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. <laughs> now, never mind the fact that behind the scenes, Dr. Blizzard must have thought out, repositioned, and refroze our two heroes before he slid them into Injustice Guild's secret headquarters. <laughs> true <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's definitely a nice little yeah super friends-esque error there maybe <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and they, and they did they did so they did so well in part one when they changed the angle of of Black Siren being frozen and she was pretty much in the same position. Right. Yeah. But here, no, they're they, like she was standing up. He was on his back in the previous episode, and now they're both like floating basically on their stomachs with their heads poking out. So yes. yeah, <laughs> just so they could banter on, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it it is very interesting. This is something I didn't point out in point in part one, but you know, later in later in part two, Flash kind of dismisses the bad puns that everybody's using, but he was using a lot of ice puns. Yes. In part one when they were fighting Dr. Blizzard. So right. he was getting he was getting into the spirit of things. Yeah, I think I think so, yeah. It it kind of played into his uh his kind of smart aleck demeanor, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tim did again forget how much they cribbed from Batman sixty six because the the phone the hotline phones uh-huh. under a dome. I mean, yeah. you know, so that they have to lift up. It's just like Commissioner Gordon keeps in the you know police headquarters. So it's although it, it, that always looked like it was made of cheap plastic, this at least looks like glass. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, so there's that. Yeah, it makes it makes that glass sound as he picks it up. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice little nice little. Holy touch there, yeah. Oh, it's nice how they put so much in the little details. It's great. Yeah, it it is. I mean, as a podcaster, especially somebody like you that puts so much, so many sound effects into their show, I mean, you you pick up things like that more, you know, because we we think about because I'm always wanting to grab sound effects from places and things too. So, you know, if I can crib one from somewhere, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, they made that sound in this episode, you know. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do love the line, you know. Only they would commit such a heinous act. And on a Sunday. Thank you know, just. <laughs> <laughs> now that begs the question, did this entire episode take place on a Sunday? Because I don't think it ever became night. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and, yeah, maybe. Unless they stayed there, you know, they were there 
that afternoon, and then the next morning they got up and and Tom Turbines because it looked like it was nighttime at the villain's headquarters, and then and then it showed him in Tom Turbines' lab where he was going over this chalkboard with this parallel world theory. So it might be over two days. Maybe. That is true. Maybe That's possible. Yeah, possibly. Because all all that other stuff was happening on a Sunday too. That <laughs> right. <laughs> And back then, I mean, everything shut down on a Sunday. There were no, you know, like restaurants and stores weren't open for the most part. And in fact, the town we live in has just kind of started to come out of that. Oh, yeah, within the last 10, 15 years. I mean, the small town we live in, uh, the biggest restaurant in town did not open on Sunday until like, what, about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. or so? Yeah, so... Uh, you know, some of that. Of course, we're behind times too. So, <laughs> yeah, only the ice cream truck was operating. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like that the Justice Guild has a battle cry. Let justice prevail. You know, uh, the JSA had for America and democracy. Although I'm not sure how often that was. I know it was used in the Golden Age comics, but I think Roy Thomas kind of took that and made it more of a thing. In like you know retroactive stories, maybe I mean maybe they did say it more than I remember, but uh, you know I don't know. Yeah, I it, it was like almost a. I remember it being more of a of a subtitle used on the covers of mm. such more than actually being shouted by the characters. But um, again, I'm going by memory here. But yes, I think they did it more in All Star Squadron than they did in All Star Comics. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm specifically thinking about that all that uh, All Star Annual Three, where they showed that missing case of the 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 Justice Society, where they've saved mm-hmm. the presidents, and and they all running out saying that. That's what stuck in my head from when I yeah. think of that. Yeah, um, I do think just like Flash jumping to time travel last episode, Hot Girl jumps to robots or clones for the Justice Guild. I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a feeling there are a bunch of people that watched Part One. That were probably thinking that who are the Justice Guild? Are they robots or clones? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, I, the ice cream man bit is is kind of creepy because it makes you wonder what has Ray done to to people that have not played along with the game. You yeah. Know? Right. Wish them into the cornfield. Exactly. What That's what I was. Yes, it's a good life. The Twilight Zone episode with Bill Mooney. That's what I was. Exactly what it made me think of. That's in my notes. So, <laughs> mine too. Sorry to jump ahead to that. Oh no, no, no! It's that's cool that we both thought the same thing. But I just thought of Bill Mooney. You know, that we're watching his favorite TV show because we have to constantly, or he'll make us go. He'll send us to the cornfield. You know, so. <laughs> you know the the ice cream driver saying business has been kind of dead is a lot very is very chilling line in retrospect. If you'll pardon the pun. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. Yeah, uh, escaping in a blimp. That's pretty gutsy when you're <laughs> up against. <laughs> I laughed out loud. When Sergeant O'Shaughnessy said, and they're escaping by blimp. Yes. They move so fast. We know Bruce Tim likes blimps, though, because of Batman the Animated Series, okay? Oh, yes. <laughs> but now we, know, now we know what Dr. Blizzard meant when he said, I have much bigger plans. <laughs> as big as a blimp. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um... And Sir Swami brings the TV antenna and cables to life, and they capture 
Tom Turbine and Green Guardsman, and Alan Scott was the head of Galaxy Broadcasting in the comics. So, do we think this is a nod, or is it just a coincidence? Ah, it's just a coincidence. I think it's a coincidence. Okay, I, I think it's another one of those very fitting things, like Sir Swami with the ruby, dressed like Sargon the Sorcerer, and and uh, Music Master with the with the Stradivarius. Yeah, yeah, and one. Yeah, I think so. It may have it may have been really intentional, or it may have just been one of those happenstance things. Right, right. Uh, you could argue the show carries on its Bat God complex with Catman because the other super powered heroes fail, but he manages to do some pretty miraculous stuff, get in the blimp, and basically take care of business by himself. So it's the music. You have that music. You can do anything. <laughs> You know, on a side on a side note, I could not edit out those sound effects very well when I tried to copy the music from the from my DVD. So we we don't have to play the music in real time like I was suggesting earlier. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I'll, I will put. I'm, I think I'm going to have to put that at the end of the episode. If nothing else. I'll say, you know, th- th- this is for Zoom at the end or something. <laughs> well, just just Catman saying, looks like it's up to me. Right. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> yeah, it really he, is. He pretty much yeah. takes them all out, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he took advantage of the Flash disabling the blimp. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was all it was all him. He mopped the floor with all of them. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so it's like, again, he's the Batman analog, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's also a good thing that the city isn't very populated because a motorcycle falling from a building that high, it's <laughs> kind of dangerous, folks. So watch out. Look out below, literally. <laughs> well, you know, I think the ice cream truck actually gets hit by the blimp when it falls. Mm, okay. Yeah. But no one else is on the street. Yeah. There you go. Well, the ice cream man is just driving around in circles. You know, nobody's stopping. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, of course we. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that, won't we, Cindy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I know Cindy's going to have logic. Last will arrive. Um, she's she's a justice skilled honorary member too. Um, so um, of course we, you know, I, we were wondering at the end of the episode, are they going to go as dark as it seems like they're going to go? Yeah, they do. They go pretty dark for what's ostensibly a kids' cartoon. Uh, mm-hmm. Here, when with the revelation of what what happened, so I mean, yeah, so it's uh, pretty heady stuff for uh, for you know, but I mean that's what's so so great about this episode is it balances these fun callbacks to this bygone era, but it, it there's so many comics nowadays that well I won't name names, but <clears throat> identity crisis that want to <laughs> take the old the classic if not quite as old comics, but you know, adult them up more or less. Mm-hmm. And they lift this nasty taste in a lot of us fans' mouths. But I think this one manages to keep the heroes, you know, it, it's got a dark storyline, but it, the heroes don't suffer from it. You know, the characters don't suffer. It actually makes them look as heroic as ever. You know, it doesn't give them feet of clay. It, it, it you know, it, it doesn't sully the characters. So I, I, I appreciate right. that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm not sure why Flash can't get loose of those ropes, but I do like that he's using his decorative but functional headgear. So. Right. <laughs> that was very unexpected. I did not. I did not see that coming. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not not just because it wasn't mentioned in the treatment, but I, I've never seen Flash use his earpiece like that before. So I it was just the last thing I expected. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I'd like to see. Uh, you know, 
Grant Gustin get stuck inside something on the TV show with no powers and take the wings off his, actually the lightning bolts on his mask and like chip away at something and get yeah. out with it. That would be cool to see him do that. Yeah. And actually, Black Siren seems pretty smitten with the Flash. She gives him. She's a, a freaking airhead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she's an airhead. She's a she's a woman that's forced to live in the time she's in. You know, so. Well, she she she's a she's so did a Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg, and you didn't see her going. Oh, save me! Oh crap! Same time frame. Well. the you know, this is Ray Thompson's nostalgic vision of Black Siren, along Rick, with the yes. stereotypical, probably his stereotypical view of women back then, possibly. True. That's true. Yeah. Not that I'm excusing any of this, but yeah, it's. Um, she does get some good licks in, though. Yes, yeah, she does. Later. Yeah, she. Oh, yeah, she definitely does when they get in the fight at the end. Yeah, uh, but now, she was very damsel in distress on the blimp. Yeah, because yes. Flash had to grab her when she's falling, and yeah, yeah. She, she well, kinda, and she, notice how she managed to break out of the ropes, which kind of made me wonder: Why are you even trying to break out of the ropes when you're that high up? Right. Exactly. I'm like, chick, get the drop. I mean, See, now you have your now you have your answer why the Flash didn't get out of those ropes. Oh, see, there you go. I mean, but the Flash could have done the whole whirlwind thing and, you know, vibrated his arms and brought himself down, you know. Yeah, exactly. True. You know. Very true. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, when, you know, when superheroes don't use the powers you know they have when they should, you're like, oh, come on, do the thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter does that, too. Does she do that, too? Okay. Oh, when we're watching the Flash on CW, she's always like, Barry can do this. Barry could do that. Yeah, How exactly. did this guy get away? Exactly. Why are they standing there? He's the Flash. Exactly. It's like. Yes. <laughs> and we just look at her. Our our standard line is it's in the script. Yeah, Danny does the same thing. Andrew does the same thing. We all do the same thing. Yeah, it's like they have an hour to fill. Exactly. They've got to keep. They've got to keep Cicada on the series through the whole season, apparently. So they can't catch him right now, or uh, whatever. Really, they don't. They don't. But. No, no, they don't, Mister Angry Face. I'm going to make my angry. Okay, let's not get into that. I'm liking this season otherwise, but him I could do without. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so the confrontation scene, I, I think it's really uh, you know nicely handled. Ray is talking up the adventure. Just like a little kid would, and then you enter the room. Oh, and that's a brilliant that's a brilliant piece of animation too. Yeah. By the way. That yeah. the way he goes through the hand gestures and stuff. I, I'm gonna put I'm gonna create animated GIFs of that scene and those two scenes I talked about earlier on part one and, and have those available for you on your show notes page. Okay, cool. That'd be great. Thank you. I'll put them I'll put them up there. Yeah, it'll it'll because yeah, this one has got like an just a little extra touch attention to details like that. that and it's and it's so he's so animated and then and then Green Lantern and Hot Girl are just sitting there just staring at them, you know, just still. <laughs> just waiting. Like how long have they been waiting there for them to come back and 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 buzz kill him? You know, I mean it's it's you know <laughs> and Nathaniel thinks he's the buzz kill on the network, right? It's like, no, these guys are buzz kill right here. You know <laughs> You'll ruin everything. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, do you think you guys think the heroes kind of know this is all fake because they seem to accept it pretty quickly. Like they, they don't refute it 
as strongly. It's like, it's did he create them too perfectly? Because they turn on him, mm-hmm. and they act as the heroes really would. So yeah. is there something in them that, like, knows that they're, or like as soon, like they didn't before, but as soon as it's brought up, it's like, they they know that that this isn't real. Do you do you think that, or am I just stretching? You don't think so? Okay, I don't know. I just they don't. No, I don't, I, I don't think they knew all. I don't think they knew all along, but that that they they definitely did not dismiss it when they started, you know, piling on the evidence. Right, right. That's what I meant. I know they didn't know it before. I think but. it's just the construct of it being a twenty-two minute episode, and you've got to mm. move. You know, hit the story yeah. beats in a certain amount of time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because even when Rod, even when Raj the robot shows up and the Justice Guild is battling them, and then they realize that the the real Justice Leaguers are in trouble. Um, you know, Tom Tom Turbine even says, "Well, if what they say is true, right? You know, defeating Ray could destroy us and this entire reality. That type of thing." So even then, they were not fully. I guess they weren't fully buying it, but right. they were they were open to the idea. Right. They were open to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you brought up that's Raj, the robot from Doom Patrol number 86 and 93. He's on the cover of 93. Uh, yes. Yeah. So um, if you go out in Mike's Amazing World or Google Doom Patrol 93, he's not red. He's gray on the cover of that. But uh, yep. but yeah, it's the same robot design. And Bruce Tim says that in a the commentary. They pulled the old... It's from a 60s, obviously, issue of Doom Patrol, but he's definitely got that kind of late Golden Age, early Silver Age aesthetic. So it works really well. So, yeah. And it's it's a very nice old school contrast to the anime robot we get in the in the opening of of episode one. Right. Yes. Yeah, that is very nice. Yeah, good. And I mean, the the episode starts essentially starts with him fighting a giant robot and more or less ends with him fighting a giant robot. So uh, that's that's symmetry. Yeah. Now, now, when the robot first shows up, when it's walking past the policeman's window, doing that silly little goose step yeah. as it goes by, it was just so ridiculous, but I love it. It was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I, another animated GIF I better get you. Yeah, there you go. That's cool. <laughs> I, I, I do think that it's really neat when Ray transforms. I mean, that's a really nice bit of animation there, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Uh, it, you know, I'm sure that that looks like there's some computer effects involved uh, in that, but uh, it's it's really seamless. And if you notice the the floor underneath him changes yeah. to the desolation yeah. that's that's really there. I thought that was a neat trick. And Bruce Tim said that design was partially inspired by the Telosians from Star Trek with the pulsating uh, brain, right. uh, you know, veins on the head, and then the. Uh, but uh, he he wasn't sure what he the whole mouth thing was where he, you know, but he had like one long arm, arm longer than the other. And one, his fingers were fused together. He's really quite disturbing, uh, uh, you know, design, but, uh, you had, you had some background on, 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 uh, did you have a little information on, on Ray there? Uh, his final form. Well, from, from the, from the treatments. Yeah. Yeah. Ray, Ray was actually the alternative, uh, alternative version of of the Justice Society villain Brainwave. Mm. Makes sense. And to be honest, he was actually named as Brainwave in the final treatment that I received, where all the other names were changed. Um, and it's my understanding that Ray actually referred to himself by that name. Oh wow! In the original script, but it was not in the final recording. 
So I don't know if it was another last minute thing they had to pull or if they just decided to not take any chances yeah. and just not and just not include it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of glad they didn't do that because I think that would have I think that would have kind of, uh, you know, the ending's very, you know, it is dark. And I think that would have maybe made it a little too comic book silly if he said, my name's Bra- I am brain. Call me brainwave. Call me brainwave. <laughs> right. Lo, there shall come a brainwave, you know, that type thing. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, and I, I, is it just me? Do you guys kind of feel bad for him in a way? Because, I mean, I know he's trying to kill Green Lantern, but his heroes he created just beat the tar out of him. You know, I mean, I know they have to. But the to. simple fact is, why were they able to? Because he made them too, he, he created them too perfectly. He recreated the Justice Guild like... He he did too good of a job. I mean, because he even says, "Why are you know I created you when when they're attacking him?" So, but again, yeah, he was why aren't they able to stop him? Why wasn't he able to stop them? I'm why sorry. wasn't he able to stop them? Because yeah. he 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 created something he couldn't control. I guess. Yeah. Well, they're his heroes, right? These yeah. are. I mean, he he essentially, you know. I, I'm, hmm. He defeated himself in a way, maybe. <laughs> well, well, in a, in a way, but I, I mean, you know, it's it's. Um, what, how, how do I put this? Essentially, Ray Ray was a kid that refused to grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a kid when this happened, uh, right. even though he's now forty years older at this point, and and he he just couldn't deal with what he had lost from the nuclear war, and you know, his living memory is a very nostalgic view of the world and his heroes. But, um, you know, so I, I, you know, he, he couldn't destroy that. He couldn't bring himself to, 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 uh, destroy that because to destroy that means that he would have to accept reality and move on. And he just couldn't do that. He couldn't move forward. Right. And I'm speaking from experience, you know, it's good to treasure the past, but you always have to move forward. Right. Uh, and rebuild what you've lost. And, and rain just never learned that he refused to learn that. Right. Um, you know, and and worse, he was preventing all the other survivors from moving on from this tragedy and rebuilding too for forty years. And we'll we'll get to that when logic lass shows up. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get to logic lass, one more thing on Ray: Is Ray dead? Did he die there, or is he still alive? I, well, yeah, that was my next question: Was Ray really stopped because he was just knocked out and left there? Right. For exactly. All we know. What makes him not? Come back later, and uh, I'm waiting for this one thing. I've, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on well, my go turn. ahead. Just go you ahead. You know, we didn't see what the ice cream man did with that brick he picked up. Here's the thing. <laughs> it's 40 years later. How are these people the same age they were 40 years ago when nuclear part happened? What happened to the rest of the planet? Where is everybody else? Because surely it didn't take out every stinking person except for this one little thing on well, the whole planet. Well, apparently, the you know, you kind of wonder what did the Justice Guild that said they, they saved the planet to a point. They they died trying to save it. So exactly. did they partially so, succeed? And So how yeah. did... I, ugh, how did these people not grow old and die? And then, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, maybe this was just a new... Maybe they did, and this was, you know, as they had kids and and things they were brought into it although he the the ice cream man references 40 years exactly driving an ice cream truck for 40 years that's yeah without so much as taking a bathroom break right (laughs) 
it's another <laughs> aspect of Ray's power, I'm sure. Or we're just all overthinking this. Yeah, I think we're just all overthinking it. it, it it's, it's making me twitchy, man. <laughs> well, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think part of it is, and and Bruce Tim and them said that the ending was a little touchy for them because they like they felt bad by you know they had to kind of make it put a positive spin on. Well, yeah, well, it's bad here, but it was worse being underneath, you know, his control and everything. So, you know, this will be a piece of cake rebuilding our world now, you know, which I'm like, okay, that's a, it's probably a little, they're whitewashing it a little too much, you know, honestly. But, but at the same time, they didn't want the Justice League to be irresponsible and leave this world, you know, in the shape it was in without some hope. And the simple fact of the matter is, this is nuclear war, this is nuclear fallout. Ray became a mutant. All of these other people probably had cancer and would have died years ago. That's probably true. Now, one other thing, though, is that we brought up on the War World episode, the Justice League left War World in the hands of Draga and and not knowing how he would, you know, unstable, and they just flew off from it. So, But at least this time they actually put a little thought into it about, you know, there's a positive spin at the end. And And I also think the fact that the... That, like you said, Zoom, the 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 convenience of them finding the transdimensional gateway, and the fact that Green Lantern could power it, and the fact that it took him straight to the regular reality, the correct yeah. Earth. the correct Earth, uh, that's all a little you know, pat. it's a yeah. little pat, but you know, well, you know, I I actually saw Green Lantern being able to power it. When they yeah, first mentioned, was... well, I can't find a significant energy source. I'm like, well, you're standing right next to one. Right. Yeah. And what... I, I do have a question. What? If this episode took place over two days, wouldn't he have to recharge his ring? Mm. Well, this was this was when this was when the ring wasn't on a time. Uh, it wasn't on a time limit. It was not every 24 hours. It was just when he runs out of energy, he has to use it. Okay. Right. Or right. he has to recharge it. Um, yeah. So we're not, which was the Kyle, it was the Kyle Rayner thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I, any other thoughts we've got on the, the end of the episode uh-huh. before we move on to the overall thoughts on it? Uh, zoom. Well, um, I liked Hawkgirl's portrayal here. Mm-hmm. Um, as as we've all kind of stated, you know, the producers didn't really delve too deep into her backstory on season one. There was a reason for that. In fact, it was my understanding that all of those Hawkgirl resola- revelations in season two were already envisioned by the showrunners from the very start. They just weren't, maybe, maybe they weren't fully sketched out. Right. So most of the time in season one, she comes off as this stern, no-nonsense soldier or is occasionally as savage as Wolverine. But um, but there have been scenes where she says a line with a little cheek to add some levity to a number of episodes like that. Don't knock it till you try it, princess type of thing from <laughs> from last episode. And uh, but but it was not until War World where we actually started to see a, um, another emotional dimension to her character. And and here in Legends, we see a bit of her compassionate side mm-hmm. as well. And and I and I like how this was a continuation of the platonic bonding with Green Lantern that was initially started in War World as well. Uh, this makes that building attraction and budding romance in season two much more natural and not forced. Yeah, yeah. Now, My here's the opinion. thing about Hot Girl, though. If John would get flashes from Ray of how things really are, 
How come he didn't get flashes from Hawk Girl? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, he couldn't read Hawk Girl's mind. Mm. Okay. It was established in it was established in only a dream as well as um as well as in um Starcrossed right. that he could not read any of the Thanagarian minds. Right. We haven't got there yet. Mm. We haven't got there yet. Yeah. You're but right. You, but you're right. That, but but you know, at the time of legends, that is a legitimate question to ask. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I I, I think despite the maybe the, the wrap up being a little uh, maybe, you know, being uh, a slave to the format of the show. Uh-huh. I, I think this almost is almost out of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is probably so far. Th- these are the two. These are my two favorite episodes that we've covered thus far. Yeah. Thus far. Um, I think this is, this is, this is kind of the point where, uh, you know, we've, 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 we, I think we had the, the lower part of the show with war world and now we're definitely picking up, you know, we've, we've had yeah. some good ones before and then, that was kind of below, and now we're. This is this shows us the the greatness that that this show will be. You know, it's got it's yeah. several. It's operating on several levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, you know, there's a lot of character development in this one, and a lot of character growth and relationship growth, and and uh, it, it's it's winking at those old comic book stories, but it's it's moving uh, it's moving superheroes forward. In the meet in media as well, you know, this is a different portrayal of this is not the Super Friends. This is this is a more um, accessible to children, of course, but a more adult a take, which is what they were what what they they were after, you know. So I I think it's it's really it's 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 just a really strong showing. And it, I, I mean, I know Tim said some people complain, but I've always heard this one held in high regard. I mean, when you mention this one, like, oh yeah, you know the Justice Guild and and uh, Mattel made action figures of everybody but Catman. Which why? Why would you make them all but Catman? Yeah. It's like I don't get it. I don't understand why they didn't make Catman. So, uh, but uh, I have them all, but not Catman. So, got any final thoughts on it, Zoom? Well, uh, well, just like what you were saying, this story is actually my favorite from the entire first season. It's not necessarily the best episode of the first season, but it's my favorite. Mm-hmm. It was just very well done, and while the story was bittersweet, it was a loving homage to the comic books I used to read in my uncle's house when I was a youth. <laughs> yeah, I I had like I said, I've forgotten it when I saw it. I'm like, oh man, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, it, it. I mean, this this is it got me in all the feels. You know, it got me in the comic geek feels, and then it gets you in that that uh, Rod Serling esque ending that it's got. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's just uh, really, just a really well done set of episodes. And, and of course, Andrew Kreisberg would go on to, uh, do a lot, uh, with, uh, the, with, uh, some of these characters, uh, and, uh, with the DC universe and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's got its ups and downs, but, uh, I enjoy watching the shows every week. So it's just a nice beginning of him with the DC characters too. So that was, that was a nice little treat when I I forgot that he was it was at Andrew Kreisberg and I was like oh yeah it's him so <laughs> very cool so we got our features to go over real quick mm. uh, so if we haven't already gone over them but yeah, yes I, let's do this I think we have yeah power action feature uh, for power action feature what, what who you think had the best moves in this episode Zoom. You know, any of Green Guardsman's constructs are my favorite power actions featured. 
but if but if I have to go with a Justice Leaguer, I would say the Flash using his earpiece to puncture the blimp just because it was so unexpected. Okay, okay, that's very good. So what about you, Cindy? Um, I would have to say just Hot Girl for not hitting every single man there. <laughs> <laughs> Power in action feature. Right. Yeah. Power action restraint. Yes. <laughs> go with that. That's Ugh. my final answer. Uh, I think I'm going to go outside the league and pick uh, Catman because he, uh, you know, like we said, he wipes the floor with the whole team of villains. I mean, the inside of the blimp floor. Uh, but uh, that, you know, I mean, he saves, he pretty much almost saves the day single handedly. Uh, so I, I think I, but I, I do love the, the Green Guardsman construct. So, rotating chairperson. Okay, for rotating chairperson, uh, who do you got as our, you know, our, the, 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 the one that exemplified the league, took charge and was the, the main Justice Leaguer or Justice Guildsman in this, in this episode, Zoom? Well, if it was Adjustment Skillsman, I would say Catman for the exact same reason that you just did for your power action feature. Okay. Uh, but for Justice League, I'll have to say Green Lantern. He showed a more vulnerable side to his brusque military persona, as you had mentioned earlier. I mean, he was opening up about reading comic books to the Flash, and he had that unashamed uh, hero worship to the streak, and, and then, of course, his open frustration to discovering his heroes becoming less and less real during his investigation with Hawkgirl. So it's, it's, it's nice to, to have that added dimension to his character. Yeah, me too. That's who I pick too. That's how I pick Greenland. What about you? Um, I respectfully pick somebody else. Okay. Um, I say Hawkgirl because even though it was a hard truth to face, she was determined to get the truth. Hmm. Yeah. But she was still, she uh, she still managed to think of Green Lantern's feelings. Though. Exactly, but yeah. that's the reason I pick her as chairperson. Yeah. Uh, okay. That works. Fair that works. enough. Works for me. Okay. She's my she's my favorite Justice Leaguer, by the way, out of the original seven yeah. Hawk Girls. So. Yeah, uh, she's she's kind of the breakout star of this of this show in a lot of ways. Yeah. So. Well, they took so many chances with her that paid off. Mm-hmm. It was so well done, and just the way Maria Canals. Uh, is able to 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 bring that character to life in all those different situations and all those different emotions. It's just wonderful. Justice League communicator. So Justice League communicator, who had the best line? What uh, what do you think, Zoom? Okay, well, since we seem to be doing a guildsman and a leaguer, the the for the guildsman, I would say Tom Turbine. The last time he says, "In Seaboard City." crime doesn't pay in mm. part two the delivery of that last line has a slight tinge of sadness to it and and it's just unfortunate that the animation did not do an adequate lip sync unless you watch the episode in widescreen oh okay <laughs> because you know we didn't I, you never mentioned this on your show and i don't want to go into it too deep but you know there was a widescreen presentation of right. of the justice league episodes on saturday and then it was a full screen on sunday and right one day whenever we have time i'd love to go over it with you but you know the 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 widescreen was matted right so the top part of the screen would have been covered up so that part where tom turbine's mouth does not move in in seaboard city would not have shown up in the widescreen version oh right that's right yeah okay yeah because in the first season they kind of faked widescreening and then the second season they actually 
did it in the aspect ratio of widescreen. So okay, we're going to go there. Okay, we're going there. <laughs> okay. okay, all right. Just Justice League was originally intended to be a widescreen program from the very get go. Okay, it was supposed to be one to eighty five uh, ratio. That's how they um, that's how they storyboarded it. Okay. Yeah. The show run, the showrunners wanted to have that cinematic quality to the program, and high definition television was in the early stages, so they wanted to be ahead of the curve. Uh, however, a majority of the televisions in the U.S. at that time, in the early noughties, they were still the, quote, standard version. Um, so that meant the widescreen show would have to be broadcast in a letterbox format mm. for the most part mm. with the black bars at the top and bottom of the screen. And I think Cartoon Network did not like that idea. They wanted the show to be in standard full screen f uh, format. And I think the studio and the network compromised by, again, having the show – animated in full screen and then they would broadcast the show on Saturday in, in widescreen in the letterbox matted format and then repeat on Sunday. But again, the show was originally intended to be widescreen. So to make it full screen, you know, there are two things you can do. One, you could cut the sides of the screen mm -hmm. or do pan and scan, which is what was commonly done with the cinema movies at the time. Right. When they were showing them on television. Uh, but the 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 in season that's actually what they did in Justice League season two mm. was they would clip the sides of the screen. But for season one, the the show producers, they didn't want to cut anything. So instead, they had the storyboard artists actually add details to the top and bottom of the scene mm. to fill out the screen that way. Right. So so actually, the full screen version contained additional detail that was not supposed to be there in the first place. Right. <laughs> and, and this was confirmed by Bruce Tim and other producers in interviews. But what's very interesting is that many viewers on the like the Tune Zone message boards and stuff, they believe that the widescreen version was cutting necessary detail out. But that actually wasn't the case. It was it was very, very odd. <laughs> It was like creating bleed. If you're, if like you're, you know, for as a graphic designer, when you got to create bleed area, you don't want anybody to ever see that, but you create it for, uh, yeah. so so the printer won't go, the uh, the printing won't go offset, and and so you got all this bleed area over the side. You don't necessarily want anybody to see it, but it's there for printing uses, and it's kind of, so it's kind of like that in a way. <laughs> right, and I find it very unfortunate. I, I don't think the first season was ever released on disc in widescreen format. Is that right? I mean, I only have the DVDs so. and the standard format. The, the, I don't have the Blu-rays. Do you have the Blu-rays? No, I don't have the Blu-rays yet. No, no, I'd like yeah. to get them, but yeah, especially I, I for would too. the show. So. <laughs> but, I, but I don't know if the Blu-rays even have the widescreen option. I hope they do. Yeah, I know Warner's, I mean, Warner's is not that great about about uh, giving you extra with the their Blu-ray releases, uh, you know that's mm. that's that's the downside to it. That's one reason I haven't pulled the trigger on most of them because it's just like, oh, it's on Blu-ray, but it's really not any different than it was before, you know. So, um, well, I mean, you know, they they used to promise that every single DC animated show that they had done since Batman the animated series was going to end up on disc, and they still have to give us the Legion season two. Right. That's right. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, don't don't hold your breath on that, right? Right, right. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to derail the conversation there. I don't know if you want to edit it out or just keep it in. For no, fun. no, you're fine. You're fine. No, we'll keep it in. Uh, so, uh, so your Justice League communicator line was from Tom Turbine. That was from the Guild. Did you have a Justice Leaguer that you that you liked? I do, and it was Hawk Girl in the final scene where she said, "They gave their lives for us. That's real enough for me." Yeah. Okay. That's great. Okay. What about you, Cindy? 
Also, hot girl, but one more word and you'll be the fastest man alive with a limp. Yeah, that's what I picked. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many great lines. It was hard to narrow it down to just one. It, it's true. Yeah. And and uh, for the for the Justice Guild, I, I picked the uh, the and, and on a Sunday, you know, I picked that one that that, that just, just just got me so so much. I love that. one. So comic connections. Uh, comic connections. I think it's pretty obvious. This whole episode, these two parts, are a giant, giant love letter to the JSA, to the JLA JSA crossovers, to the multiverse, to Gardner Fox. And we didn't mention there is a. I, I meant to mention that there is a loving tribute to Gardner Fox at the end of the episode, which I think is just great. And you didn't see that a whole lot. They did one for Jack Kirby uh, in the Superman animated series episode. Uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, and uh, I really thought that was really nice that they did that. And uh, so, yeah, of course, the comic connection here is super obvious. It's 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 pretty much the DC, the pre-crisis DC universe is the comic connection yeah. in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, but if we want to get to specific issues, I would say Justice League of America ver- uh, Volume 1 issues 21 and 22, which was right. actually the very first... J, uh, Justice League, Justice Society team up where they meet each other and they immediately break into pairs and fight another team of villains. Right. Yes. It's very much like that. And then, of course, all the references to Flash Volume 1, Issue 123, the Flash of Two Worlds story that we mentioned earlier. Right. Right. Yeah. Those those specifically. But yeah. Not so Superman count. Okay, so not so Superman counts. Well, Superman's barely in this episode. But he still manages to get one. He still manages to get one. <laughs> he gets zapped by the electricity from the robots. And uh, so, yeah, there. I think we all agree that's the only one because that's the only time Superman, you know, he does rip the robot open at least. Uh, so he does yeah. manage to do something useful. Um, and make Batman feel useful too. Exactly. Yeah. That's two things he did that were useful. Hot girl, magic mace meter. Hot girl, magic mace meter. Actually, I don't know about you guys. I didn't personally see her do anything with the mace that was like, what, in this one. Did mm. you? What about you, Cindy? Nah. Now, Zoom? No, I did not. But, I, but I, I did like how Hot Girl used her mace in the opening sequence on part one to divert the Luthor robot's hand when it tried to smash the falling Green Lantern. I thought that was a very nice move. Oh yeah, that's good. Good call. But yeah. it but it doesn't but it doesn't fall under magic mace. No, it doesn't. It's that's a that's a good use of it. Yeah. So <laughs> Electricity is evil. Uh electricity is evil. So we kind of already went over this, but uh Superman gets zapped and the electricity actually plus the fat flash of speed is actually what sends them to the parallel world, so parallel world, so that's pretty evil. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yes. <yeah, so. laughs> but it saved a world. Well, that's true. It saved a world from Bill Mummy. So yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's right. They took him there. So yeah. Um, well, I think that's all we've got on this one. You guys uh, got anything else you want to add before we work it? Uh, sign off? I'd let Zoom go back to use the transdimensional gateway. To get back to the Zoom crew. Uh, so, Zoom, why don't you tell us uh, where we can find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, you know, I, I can be found elsewhere on the network on the um, the Done in One Wonders podcast, Wonder Show, as you know. Um, and as fate would have it, our next episode will be covering another Justice League of America story. Oh, cool. Very cool. 
And and before I go, just um, let me thank you for having me because I essentially invited myself onto this fine show. <laughs> no, now I so asked the guys. You not only put me up, but you're putting up with me. So <laughs> it's all good, dude. Yeah, it's I asked the I asked the groups like, you guys got any sp- specific episodes you want to talk about? And you said legends, and I said yes, and and you know of course. And uh, so here we are. So it's been great to have you, Zoom. Thank you for for talking with us and you and I get to geek out while Cindy, you know, is probably going, Oh my God, there's another one like him. Uh, so (laughs) is that what that rolling sound was? It was her eyes. (laughs) It was her eyes rolling. Yes. No, but, uh, thank you for coming on. It's always great to talk to you and, uh, we appreciate it. And we'll have to get you back sometime in the future on JLU cast. So I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Cindy and I will do our listener feedback. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression. While war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe, Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio. But a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the golden age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher. And visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Okay, we're back, but before we get into feedback, we do have Justice League animated news, like actual news. Uh-huh. Coming soon is the animated film Justice League vs. The Fatal Five, set in the JLU continuity and visual style. It reunites producer Bruce Timm... Yes, with voice actors Kevin Conroy, Woo-hoo! George Newbern, Woo-hoo! and Susan Eisenberg. Woo-hoo! So the Trinity, the DC Trinity from yeah. Justice League. <laughs> Uh, it also has uh, Mr. Terrific and uh, the Jessica Cruz version of Green Lantern mm-hmm. and uh, Starboy mm-hmm. from the Legion, or maybe Starman, but whatever, you know, the Tom Caller uh, Starboy. Uh, the movie drops on digital March 30th and on Blu-ray April 16th, and we have plans for this movie, and they include some special guests, so stay tuned, but rest assured, we will cover the movie here on JLUcast. Well, duh. Yeah, of course. Very excited about that. Uh, okay, jumping into our feedback, we had Facebook likes and shares from Ryan Daly, Max Romero, Clinton Robison, Derek William Crabb, Van Z, Brian Linton, Terrence Castingway, Richard Field, Zeb Oswalt, Martheus McBride, Brian Ng, Sean Emmons, Ivan Chudley, Chris Lydon, David Gallagher, Mike Zemkowski, Shag, Siskoid, Coffee and Comics, and Rob Kelly. Uh, we did get one Facebook comment, uh, Chris Denmead wrote in. Here's an interesting question you can answer next month. How would this work on a transgender person? He means the virus that was killing the, oh, yeah. the men. If they were a trans man or if they were a trans man or a trans woman, would it work on a trans woman even though on the genetic DNA level she is a male? I'm asking this question the best way I can think of without pissing someone off. I hope you understand and can't wait to hear your response. Well, I am in no way an expert on these matters, uh, but... I would say, just based on what we saw, then if you were biologically a male, it would affect you. If not, it wouldn't. Right. That's just, I mean, and I, if you guys got different opinions, that is not meant to offend anybody. I'm just going by genetics. Right, 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 right. Pure genetics, uh, you know. But then there's also the case that 
you know, mind mind over matter, would it, you know, be that far, you know, ingrained in their psyche to where it wouldn't, you mm. know, so there's that aspect Well, too. and then there's the magical aspect that we talked about. Right, it? so, you so know. So it might have to do more with your personality thing. So if that's the case, then, so basically we're wishy-washy and saying yeah. we don't know. Yeah, I mean, so, but, I mean, I, you know, it is a question, but at the same time, there you go. Yeah, I wanted to address it, but I, you know, if you've got, guys got an opinion, if anybody's got an opinion on it, let us know, but I really don't know one way or the other. I think it could go different ways, but just by pure, if you're just going by the genetics, then I'd say no. But uh, we got Twitter retweets and likes from Scott X, Liz Ann Oswalt, Jeffrey Brown, Martin Gray, Shag, Firestorm Fan, Ryan Daly, Comic Reflections, Ollie Queen, Max Romero, It's Plastic Man, The Mirror Factory, Jeff Hunter, KB Likes Comics, BGSU Bat Conference, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Connell, Siskoid, Tim Price, Superman Movie Minute, Mountain Comics, The Aquaman Shrine, Demetrius Adams, The Complete Pete, Rick Rouge, Ranger Gord, Jack Roca, Big Daddy's Bacon Big Daddy, <laughs> uh, Richard Schneider, Jeremiah Parker, Robert Patrick, The World's Finest, BK on the Air, and Chris Lighton. The World's Finest is a website that I use to get a lot of the information. Oh, okay. So it's kind of cool. I've been using, you know, I've, I've long went to The World's Finest. Oh, yeah. Even when the shows were new, mm-hmm. I would go and get the, and I still follow The World's Finest. They've been running for years now, 20 years now. And so it's cool. They liked us mm-hmm. on Twitter. So that, that was cool. They're very cool to see. So thanks everybody who liked and shared. And we do really do appreciate it. And uh, please continue to do so. That's great. Uh, so we got some comments on firewaterpodcast.com. Uh, do you want to take the first one there? Okay. Rob Kelly writes in, I've said it before, but I love Cindy's laugh. It's infectious laughs. <laughs> that don't knock it till you've tried it joke is the kind of thing that I think got by censors because I bet most of them just didn't get it. Eh, it's a cartoon, whatever. This episode has an accidental Friends connection. Maggie Wheeler played the recurring character of Janice. Oh my god! And George Newbern did a few episodes as a potential romantic partner for Rachel. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You didn't like my... No, no, that's fine. I just, I'd forgotten the character until you did that. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get quite as nasally, sorry. Yeah. Um... Okay, so to go back to Rob's comment, like I went through with MASHcast, I think um, Justice League's first season is its weakest, so the podcast tends to feel a bit more negative, or at least mixed, than one would expect. But like you said, once the show hits its stride, it stayed there. And no worries, I won't replace Chris on Power Records podcast. Unless, of course, Richard Donner returns my email. <laughs> if you can get Richard Donner to be your co-host, dude, I will... I will... I will proudly step aside for that. That's that's what all I got to say about that. Yeah. Max Traver writes in, I particularly enjoyed your commentary on the shifting sands of the science beside the super anti-dude allergen in this episode. <laughs> anti-dude allergen, I like that. <laughs> Comic book, or okay, maybe cartoon science may be shady, but it sure is fun, and so is this show. Thanks for another fantastic episode. Now, I need to go to iTunes and leave a review. Actually, yes, everyone, please go to iTunes and leave a review. We do have a few, but I didn't see any from where I asked last time. So, uh-huh. so please go out. If if you're a fan of this show, if you like this show, if you listen to the show, please go out, leave us an iTunes review. And on the next episode, you know, when we get a few, I will read them. We will mm-hmm. read them on the air. We will both read them on the air. So please go out and and that helps us. You know, raise the profile. Of the show helps raise the profile. Of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So please go do that if you have the time. We'd appreciate it. I've got a comment from Liz Ann Oswald. I saw this one on Cartoon Network when it was first on the air. 
was fun to see Fury. I liked her in Infinity Incorporated. Not as much as Jade, but she was pretty cool. I did like her better as Wonder Woman's kid, but whatever. Again, the whole JSA thing. So, uh, Yeah, the soup's getting beat up all the time does get old. Then bats beating everyone. Just grrr, which we got with Catman in this episode. Lizanne continues, not dissing bat, just come on. Soup's is the strongest hero they have. Why is he always getting beat? With Wonder Woman being number two. Fury in a big fight, maybe. But everyone from Darkseid to the prankster seems to be able to knock out Soup's. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Ward Hill Terry writes in, Hi, Chris and Cindy. I'll limit myself in my critiques. I know you're fans of the show, and you do a good job pointing out the flaws and logic lapses. All I know is what you share, and I've got to say that I am disappointed in most of the voice acting, especially the women. It seems like a woman from the planet Thanagar, a woman from ancient Greece, and a woman from some unknown country that is invaded by another unknown nation all sound like middle American newscasters. Similar timbers and voice range. It's too bad the producers and or network didn't even allow a hint of a vague accent. Well, you know, I mean, I think, I, I, I see where he's coming from, but now with Hot Girl, we'll see eventually that everybody from Thanagar is played by a Latino actor, mm -hmm. and so they all have the similar accent to Hot Girl, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, then with, I will say that going back and listening to the episode to do the, pull the audio out and stuff, I, Julie Bowen's Aresia was a little flat. I, I don't know if she was quite up to the Task. the level. I mean, like the great voice acting we got in this episode right. was fantastic. Uh -huh. I mean, everybody in this episode. And not that Julie Bowen's, she's a good actress, but it just, it was a little flat. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it too is, you know, you got to think, the, the template for Wonder Woman before was the Linda Carter series and everybody just sounded, you know, yeah. American. You yeah, know, right, I mean, right, right. they had no accents. I mean... Gal Gadot, the Themyscira of the movies, is based around her accent. Right. They all copied her accent, and she's Israeli, but they right. copied her accent. So that gave one Paradise Island Themyscira an accent. Right. So I, you know, I think that's kind of a new thing that we've kind of started to figure. Wonder Woman has an accent just because we all love Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Right. And I could be wrong, and maybe Ward Hill's like she should have an accent anyway. But I, I think to me that's a fairly new thing. Because Shannon Farnan obviously didn't have an ac accent on the Super Friends. Right. So, you know, I mean, I guess she does have an accent, but not a non-American accent. We all have accents. But, right. You know, and apparently we have an accent, like I said. I, I didn't. I, people point this out. You know, Liberty Bell sounds like she's from Appalachia or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Tim Price writes in, Grundy agrees when Aresia promises... <laughs> Grundy agrees when Aresia promises a chest of gold. Hmm, I guess you could read that two ways. And he <laughs> writes, Cindy, my goodness, blush. Seriously, that bit made me laugh so hard. Thank you, C&C. It's a good thing no electrical opponents have appeared yet. One could walk all over the whole team, even Batman. Props for electricity is evil. Well, I do know when the Ultimen appear, which are the analogs of the ethnic super friends, um, you know, Black Vulcan, Samurai Apache Chief, El Dorado, when they appear, I don't think there's an El Dorado, but when they appear, uh, there is a Black Vulcan analog mm. who's all electricity. So right. we'll see how that goes. And that's in Justice League Unlimited, but, you know. So that's our comments this time. Thanks, everybody, for writing in. We've got a lot of uh, stuff going on. We've got another episode coming up. We've got the movie to do, so I don't know which one will hit first. It's according to how schedules go. Mm. This episode's been a little bit late because we've had a lot of other podcast things to do. So, uh, you know, sorry for the delay, but here it is. 
And, uh, you know, we'll see you guys later. We got a lot of exciting things going on in Justice League. So we'll be back. It's just not exactly sure which one first, but we'll be back with more Justice League. That's right. See you later. Bye. JLU Cast is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide and is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue mommy and daddy. Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for JLUcast and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to JLUcast. And I have to talk a little bit about Ray here. It turns out, if anybody who's not seen this episode, I'm going to spoil it for you. But uh, Ray turns out to be the villain of this piece. And um, he's he's kind of a combination of, in my mind, he's a kind of combination of Ray Bradbury and Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas is a famous comic book writer who is also probably the world's biggest Justice Society fan. And, you know, sure enough, if there had been a nuclear war when Roy Thomas was a 15-year-old kid, and he somehow got amazing mental powers to be able to, you know, change reality. I can, I am convinced he would do this. That he would bring the Justice Society to life. 